Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome to episode 45 of Andrew Talks to Awesome People. And this week, it is Bob Clearmountain. He's the Bob in What Would Bob Do? So without any further ado, and before I start rhyming more things, let's go, Bob Clearmountain. Well, well, we'll get into this later, but I, I saw somewhere that you're about to be getting into Atmos, so we can definitely talk about that, because I think also retrofitting that into a purpose-built studio like yours is, is a bit of an interesting project, so. Yeah, it's still, it's still a project. I'm still working on it. It's, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much there. It's just, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that, but... What I like to do, as everybody who watches this knows, is I like to go chronologically. And I was talking to, to Bob before we started about the fact we're going to go chronologically up to a point, but then because it would take us months to get through everything, then we're going to just start sort of grouping some things and stuff. But I would, I always love to hear kind of the root in. And yours is the same as a lot of people's having played in bands and then seeing studios and things, but yours is like super specific and I'd love to hear, like, growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, like, what sort of music was going on? And when did you start realizing that recording was a thing and, and to start getting into that? Well, okay. Um, I was into music. My, my older brother was a, a little, a bit of a musician. He had a folk singing group called the Greenwich Wayfarers. And uh, so I used to go and hang out at the rehearsals and, you know, uh, he, my brother's eight years older than me, so he, he was more like a parent almost, and I was a big fan of his. And um, so I, I was into music, and then my first band was a ukulele band with two of my friends, and when we were, must have been 11, <laughs> you know, and then the Beatles came along and changed my life as, as they did for many people. And um, I started watching shows like Shindig and things like that. And I, something about the bass, I always, I don't know, something that attracted me. Maybe because it only had four strings, it seemed like it almost be easier to play than a guitar. Well, and <laughs> coming know. from ukulele, a little bit bigger, but it's the same thing, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> little tuning's a little different. And um, let, let me see. So, you know, started a, a little rock band and we used to do, you know, we used to play Louie Louie and all the, you know those songs back then and um uh and let me see where where does it go from there um it, you know just we used to play friends parties and things like that and and um and then when i got to be 15 or like 16 or 17 i got into you know the bands kept getting a bit better you know always different bands and um we started playing bars in the neighboring town of, of portchester new york because greenwich the uh Drinking age was 21, and um, Porchester was 18. And so, um, you know, I pretended like I was 18, I think. I, I think it's actually that the, when we started playing there, I actually was eight, 18. It was like, my, like the, last, the last band I was in. We had like a, reg, a couple of regular gigs in some bars in, in Porchester, and, um, which is, I guess, when my tinnitus probably started because <laughs> it was really loud and tiny little bars, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, um, the thing was that uh, I should backtrack a little bit when I was really little, I must've been six or seven. I had a dream about a recording studio What? and I thought it was like this thing that you drove up like a, a drive up window and then you, you sing 
And then, then you go to the next window and they hand you a record. And, and that was what a recording studio was. You know? So like those that booths my... they used to have where you could pop into the booth and record your yeah. own record. And... Wow. But it was just, a, it was actual dream. It wasn't like, it was something, you know, I woke up and was like, oh, that's, is, I wonder if that's what a recording studio was like. And then I just became into, uh, intrigued by it. My dad brought home a tape recorder because my mother was an Eng English grammar teacher in a middle school and she wanted to show her kids how badly they spoke so she could play record them and play it back to them and so he brings it i go Ooh, what's that you know and immediately wait a minute wait i gotta check this out you know wow you can record sounds and then play them back are you kidding me this is the coolest thing i've ever seen in my life you know and that that actually tape tape recorder had a speaker in it it became my bass amp when i finally bought a bass yeah, because <laughs> wow, it was this huge thing, you know, and um, I because I, I didn't have a bass amp, I, I just had a really cheap $25 bass, and um, and then it just it, it just went from there. And then, oh, I know, I had this girlfriend when I was 16, and her father sold uh electronic components. This is was his business, you know, so he had. A bunch of magazines, sort of these uh, industry magazines, and one of them, I don't know if you remember, a magazine called DB. Oh yeah, it was absolutely. like it was like mix this kind of, you know, it was a recording magazine, and it had all these. Uh oh, I lost my, my earphone. <laughs> um, it had all these ads for recording consoles and you know two inch tape machines and all, and I went, wow, what's this, you know? Yeah. And so I thought. So my senior year of high school, I decided, forget this musician thing. I hated being on stage. I didn't like people looking at me or bright lights. And I thought, I'll be the, the guy. There's got to be somebody putting that together, you know, like somebody on the other side of the glass. Right. Recording, doing the technical part of it. So I wanted to be that guy instead of uh, being in a, in a band. And because I couldn't, the last band I was in, the guitar player uh, turned out, we had this big month-long gig in it at a bar in, in New York. And the guitar player uh, decided to have a thing with the lead singer's girlfriend. You know, and like, ah, oh, shit. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> really? Do you have to do that? You know, that, that was the end of that band. And so I said, but, no, forget I'm not doing this. But was that the band that was recording the demos? at media no. sound no okay so no, this is then different. well it was uh let me think yeah no it was i'm sorry yeah that was it was that band yeah and uh the lead singer was friends with michael delug who was in one of the engineers at media right right and, okay um, so they had written some songs together they'd gone to school together or something and so we were doing demos recording their songs and uh, so that's how the first time I walked into a real recording studio, I went, geez, ooh, I could live in a place like this, you know? And of course, <laughs> I still do. Yeah. So that and, uh, <laughs> was, so, so get, was that the first time you'd actually made it into a proper studio? Yeah. yeah that's right. And had just exploded yeah. like right then and there. I like, just thought this, this is it. This is it for me. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and then, so the band split up because of, the reason I just told you. And um, I started, I made friends with some of the people at the studio with Michael Delug and, and uh, I went to the, 
to, to the uh, the guy, the woman that ran the place, a wonderful person named Susan Planer. And I said, you know, I, I, you should hire me. I'd really like to have a job here because I think I'll be good at this someday. Because it's kind of, this is what I'm th think about all the time. She said, well, yeah, we don't, we can't hire you now. Come back in September because our interns will be going back to school. Okay, so I came back in September and um, they said, you'll, you'll, we'll hire you as a runner, uh, you know, as a delivery boy. Okay, I come in and uh, they said, oh yeah, you, you're, you're the new runner, get down to the shipping department. So we're in the shipping department, they sent me out on two deliveries and um, I came back and the receptionist said, are you that Clear Mountain kid? I said, yeah. Oh man, they're looking for you upstairs. You better get upstairs. Everybody's been looking for you. Go, oh shit. You know, I've been here an hour and I've screwed up already. <laughs> right. So I go upstairs and said, where have you been? Well, I went out on the delivery. No, well, we don't need any delivery boys. We need an assistant. Get down to studio A. Oh, okay. You're an assistant now. It's like, wow, that was quick. <laughs> okay. And I go in and my, the first session they've put me on is Duke Ellington. Just amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so I want to get back to the Duke Ellington session in a minute because that is so insane. But had you been hanging around the studio and kind of being taught some stuff in between or were you just going in there cold, basically? No, I was going in cold. No, I, you know, I still had my little thing at home because I was the guy in the band always recording everything because I, I was re recording my friends at home. and. But this is like still that, on just stereo. like a quarter inch... Yeah, no sound on sound, none of that. Just no, no, no. And uh, so I, I knew nothing really, you know, other than what I picked up in in the from doing the demos. You know, I learned that oh, you could do an edit. You could actually. Uh, I thought that was amazing. When, when <laughs> I remember the first time, Michael, we, you know, somebody screwed up in the middle of a take, and Michael said, "Oh, well, just pick it up from there." I was like, "Pick it up from there? What does that mean?" <laughs> Oh, just start playing just before the, the second chorus. Okay. I'm thinking, well, what's that going to do? You know. And then I watched him cut the tape and put it together. And all of a sudden, it sounded like a complete take. And that, I was like, wow, that's so cool. Wow. So, so, I mean, I learned, I knew some things like that. But so what did you do? I mean, so you go into Studio A and it's Duke Ellington and presumably a lot of musicians. You've never... Uh, on this it was he was doing a whole he was overdubbing a horn section onto something he had right recorded okay. and this is the another funny story is that that the um one of the the trumpet player had shown up drunk and this is like at 12 30 in the afternoon or something like that and he's screaming at the at the trumpet player he's cursing him out he's like you fucking asshole you son of a bitch what the fuck are you thinking about and and my big revelation was that Wow, I didn't know famous people swore. <laughs> right, because you only saw them on TV when they weren't allowed yeah, to. Yeah, right, yeah. I was 19 <laughs> years old, and, you know, all my friends swore, but, wow, he's like a famous, he's important and like a famous person. <laughs> wow. So, but how did that session go? I mean, what what were you expected to do and how to go? Well, I was like this, I was the second assistant, okay. so I was following the other assistant. He was sort of teaching me what to do. Turns right. out most of what he told me was wrong. I found out later. <laughs> that's but, still uh, pretty, that's pretty heavy. I mean, and it's, and also 
unless I'm getting this wrong, that was Al Schmidt's first session too, was Duke Ellington. So this is a, How about that? a common theme. I know. I, t- I talked, I saw Al the other day and we were, he, we were talking about that, that both our first sessions, although he was actually in engineering. Right. With, but, uh, but in that same kind Duke. of like, what do you mean no one else is here sort of thing? I got to yeah, do what? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. That, that's absolutely amazing. So then from that day, you were assistant, full-time assistant at the studio then. Yeah, I was full-time assistant. And then, and then they were the studio was great because they would give me if there were like these little COD sessions, voiceovers and things like that, they would sometimes put me on them just to see how I would do. And um and then there was I actually did a, a cool in the gang session just a few months after I started where I was the assistant on this session. There was just they were overdubbing um, some synthesizers and they needed a couple things mixed and the engineer was one of the daytime jingle guys and he didn't like working on records and he didn't like working at night uh, I think and so he just said you know I was the assistant he said no no you here you do this session and he sat there in the back of the control room and read the newspaper <laughs> and I you know I'd never even sat down at the console before right Wow. I just watched other people do it. And I, and I said, well, I, I, he said, you'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I did. I mean, I, I overdubbed a bunch of synthesizers. I remember, we, I remember we had to bounce tracks. I didn't know what that meant at first. And I had to figure it out when Ron Bell said from cooling the guy, he said, okay, let's just bounce those down to a track. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I just had to, <laughs> I had to figure out what he was talking about. And uh, I did that, and I ended up mixing a couple of the songs that night, which wow. was really wild. Then they came came back six months later and started their next album, and Tony Bon Jovi was the engineer and uh, didn't show up. Which so is another the common theme. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, there's that Al Schmidt thing again. Yeah, uh, well, and with... the Ed Stasium thing, because Tony just split. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right, Tony would do that a lot. Yeah. And Tony claims he d- he did that because he he wanted me to go into the deep end and, you know, and so I don't know if I believe that. I think he's just just would uh, had a hangover or something. I don't know. <laughs> or it's, it's but, something else to do, a second career or something. But I mean that it does seem to be a common theme with him of just like either showing up and then leaving or not coming and people getting pretty great opportunities because of it yeah yeah and so i mean thank you tony you know because it, it really was and those guys were great man and ron bell was the nicest guy in the world so such so just a genius i mean you know i was really sad to hear that he passed away uh, several months ago and um he it, what he did meant a lot to me i mean it was a big deal to my career that he he <coughs> excuse me i was the assistant and he could have complained and said, well, where's, where's Tony? Where's my engineer? What are you giving me this kid for? You know, he didn't know who I was really. He, I mean, he sort of remembered me from the earlier session, I think. And, uh, but he went, oh, well, what do you got? You know, cause I set up the session and then as they were running it down, I recorded what they were doing. And he said, oh, did you record any of that? I said, yeah, yeah. And he listened, soloed all these. He goes, yeah, that's great. Okay, let's go. You know, and he was totally cool. And, it was so nice. And at that point, I mean, how much recording had you been able to do? 
None, really. None. That that was the first full rhythm section I had ever recorded Man. that that night. And one of them, there was two nights, and we did funky stuff in, and Hollywood swinging. <laughs> Those two, and one of them was, uh, I think, Hollywood swinging was number six or something like that in Billboard. You know, it was a hit. Yeah, I I didn't mix it, but but uh, I think and Jeffrey Lesser mixed it. So you basically were you going off of like had Tony left a setup or you just set, no you just did it no just I just did it from what you I mean seen I'd set up and... I'd set up a lot of rhythm sections so I knew how to set it all right up right and, right okay and you know I just had never really dialed in any EQ or anything right wow amazing I knew how how to Tony would just patch a Poltec you know his only patch was was always um, the the mono drum bus into a eqp 1a3 and then into the tape machine right that, that was the only patch you'd ever do and was this on what so i knew that one on 16 track at this point 16 track 16 yeah right and a big old ampex mm1000 right and so that was you're doing the cool in the gang stuff and then um unless i've got this wrong oh no no sorry i'm thinking of something else later on forget it so um it's just I'm still my mind is just exploding, but could you do me a favor? Because Media Sound, I mean, so many people came out of that studio, and so far I've talked to a few other people who came out of there as well, and everybody talks about Susan Planer in the way yeah. you did, just almost worshipful. You know, she. Yeah. Could you just talk about her a little bit? Because no one ever really got into specifics, and there's obviously a, there's a legacy of studio managers who have managed like um rose at record plant and then paul and, right, sure. and candace and so there is this legacy of studio managers who have really influenced people like you and me but i'd love it if you would just talk about susan for a minute well i mean first of all she's the one that gave me, she hired me and she was the one that gave me a shot and um she was a hard ass though i mean it wasn't like she was all funding games i mean there were times where i can we complain i'd start to do a bunch of sessions on my own and then all next thing i knew i was on a session as an assistant again and i go up and I go what what's what the hell you know what are you doing to me you know and she go look this is what you're doing <laughs> she, she didn't care she was like just you know you work you work for us you kind of do what we say what we tell you to do and that's it but <laughs> in a really nice way and the thing was she was always encouraging and and she'd be she'd put me on sessions that just let's see how let's see how you do with it, this thing you know and she would actually trust that i could she, she she was very observant and she could tell when somebody was doing good or somebody wasn't doing so good right and uh, she could figure out what your limitations were and I mean, she really was just a wonderful person, you know, when I say she was a hard ass, but only in a, in a good way. Right. You know, and she, as she should be, you know, and um, unfortunately she died in a terrible car accident, which is awful. It's just so sad, but yeah, everybody had so much respect for her all the time. You know, e even when she tell me I was wrong, I still respected her. Right. It. Right. <laughs> well, so and also the staff there it, it's insane the kind of roster of staff engineers at that moment and a couple of years before and after were there lots of other people who would come in not work out and leave or 
was it just this magic group of people who just showed up? Um, there were a few others. I mean, there were some independent engineers that would come in and, and work there once in a while. Um, but, um, yeah, it was mainly, yeah, let's see, it was Harvey Goldberg, my, uh, Michael DeLug, of course. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, I'm going blank now. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and obviously then... Ron St. Germain, Godfrey Diamond, um, Michael Barbiero. That's who I was trying to think of. Right. And uh, it was Joe Jorgensen, who was one of the the, um, jingle guys. He he was really... I mean, I learned from all of them. I just learned from watching these guys and how they dealt with clients. And, you know, that's the main thing. The technical stuff, most of it I figured out myself, I think. Oh, Jeffrey Lesser was the uh, was the guy that I really learned a lot from because he was always into trying stuff. He was one of the few guys that was uh, some new piece of gear would come along. Oh, let's plug that in and see what it does, you know? Right. So I really enjoyed working with him a lot. I think he was the one that mixed those uh, early Coma Gang records too. Right, right. Yeah, just an amazing group of people there. Um so you were there for a while, and also um, at one point you didn't you get to hang out on some of the Intervision sessions, the Stevie Wonder sessions. Yeah. And was this before you actually had the gig, or was this after you were on staff there? No, I was on staff, but I was during those times. I was mostly uh, on the day shift, and so I'd be setting up for jingles and. We did the music for Sesame Street, and when we did the before the Thanksgiving, we did all the pre-records for the the parade, all that kind of stuff. And I was the an assistant on all that kind of thing. But then at night, um, in comes Stevie Wonder doing his session. So I made friends with Bob Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil, who were the producers, and just you know I'd get caught. I said, "Look, can can I hang out?" And because I was a big fan of Stevie Wonder, and would, would you mind if I hang out? I'll get coffee or whatever, you, whatever you want me to do. You know, I would, whatever, <laughs> you know, any odd jobs that they needed me to do. And I just sit in the back of the control room and listen and watch him work. And it was pretty remarkable. I mean, guy is such a genius. I mean, I think he still is a genius. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Lots learned. And presumably him. there was also a staff assistant there as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't really the assistant on the session. They just let me hang, right? You know, and so and then so those sessions would last till like two or three in the morning, and of course I'd have to be back at nine in the morning, right? To to set up for jingles. Well, and how was this working? Because you were still living at home when you came in to do those demos, or how did you deal um, with, with the commute? Did you just find a place in New think. York? Well, no, no, I actually, I actually moved to an apartment. I had a roommate down the Lower East Side um, for the first six months because he, he was, uh, he was going to school. He was going to the new school. And then in, in spring, he, then I had to go live at home in Greenwich for a couple months until I I finally got another apartment in the city with, um, let's see, with Harvey Goldberg. Harvey does the, all the sound for um, Colbert show now, right? And um, does or the, all the music, music mixing, and uh, another guy named 
Martin Bach, who was a bass player, a pro professional bass player. And um, so we had a we had an apartment on the Upper East, Upper West Side. Right. I, I could imagine that'd be a pretty brutal commute otherwise. <laughs> well, on the train, yeah. You know, with all the commuters on the on the Yeah. You know, it's a forty five minute train ride, but you'd you know, getting on in, in Greenwich or old Greenwich where I'd have to get on. Uh, there were already the train was already packed. Yeah, half of so Connecticut just was standing on there. there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it was awful. It was pretty terrible, and everybody smoked back then as right. well, which that wasn't so much fun. And um, but yeah, I didn't have to do that very long. I mean, I I pretty much lived in New York most of the time. Right. You know? So then, so Media Sound. Um, I, also, there's something else you said that I, I loved. But I'm, I'd love to get a little bit of clarification that the consoles were terrible. <laughs> oh, God. Because <laughs> they were homemade. <laughs> but they were based on something, right? Uh, on a, uh, it was called a Spectrasonics 101 card, whatever that was. That's all I knew. Yeah, because I mean, the, the, the me. actual Spectrasonics consoles are, you know, there are a bunch of them in Memphis and they're apparently really good. But this was obviously nothing to do with that, really. No, there was just a, uh, I think it was just a preamp card and it was a rack of them. Like if you, there was a, there was the console was basically made out of wood and formica. It was a big sheet of metal with a bunch of holes drilled in it and, you know, knobs and stuff. Not a lot of the knobs, right. by the way. And then you'd pull the, because it was an old church, they had these old pews that were left over from when it was a church. And so the couch in front of the console was a pew and you'd pull that back. It was a mass of wires and a rack of these cards or a couple of racks of cards. No, it was just one rack of cards. And then uh, a ton of transformers that were all just wired in because when they first wired it up, it hummed like crazy, apparently. And so they put they had to put in all these isolation transformers to kind of make it work. God. And uh, it was terrible. And, that, and it had, I think it had about 12... 12 dB of headroom, right? <laughs> Which is like, so basically every, drums were always distorted. So the, <laughs> you know the, the I mean? good old analog days. <laughs> yeah. So what we used to do, we I finally found, realized that, maybe, maybe it was higher than that. It's probably 15 or 18 dB of headroom, which still isn't very high because you're, you know, a snare drum is going to peak at 20, 22 dB. And uh, so what we used to do is crank the input to the tape machine so you wouldn't have to push the preamps quite so hard, you know, that right. the, the output buses of the console wouldn't have to, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get into the, uh, into distortion as quickly. <laughs> and also your, your starting point on that board was the 10 K just cranked on every single channel. That's right. Yeah. Oh, you've heard all this. Yeah. No, but I, so you, yeah, need, well, you need to tell the kids cause it's just, it was amazing. a two band equalizer. It was high and low frequencies. And it was like uh, like four high end frequencies. There's no mid range, and you know it was probably you know eighty, a hundred cycles, two hundred cycles, and three hundred cycles, something like that. On the bottom end, but I would turn, put them all at ten k, and crank them all all the way up <laughs> just to get started. Wow. And then I start plugging in Poltex. I you know I'd I'd come in early before my session because the Poltex were always in these little boxes scattered all over the stu studio. There were three, four rooms really, and th 
three floors, three flights of stairs or two flights of stairs. And so I'd come in before anybody got there and get a whole pile of them and <laughs> pile them up in my, my room. Everybody else would come in, what happened to all the poll texts? Yeah, Clear Mountains has a session. <laughs> <laughs> That's just amazing. I mean, because it's, it's obviously not the you know, pristine analog loveliness that everybody thinks like every studio in the world was at that point. And yeah. so, and considering like you started there and that's what you knew, what was the first time you got on a desk that you thought, oh, this is how it's supposed to be? That oh, must well, have been I, quite I, the revelation. Yeah, it really was. You know, I, I got to work at Electric Lady Studios and they had a, Oh, what's the one? Maybe you know, uh, ten little, little faders for EQs. I think it. Uh, it wasn't a Trident. It was a. Oh, I don't. I can't remember. It wasn't a Helios, was it? No, it wasn't a Helios. Uh, it was an American console, I think. But um, I'm sure there are 50 people in the it was, chat saying what it is. So you know, we'll find. Yeah, out. it was an inline console. I remember it's black, and it I, sounded pretty good, you know. And it was it. it I, that's the thing I thought was so cool. It, wow, an inline console. Because that's pretty new meant that then. Back then, it was unusual. You know, I think it was the only inline consoles. I could, I'm probably wrong about that, but no, it's we'll the only say, one that I knew it about. Is. Let's say it is, because yeah. no one's going to check it. And then I realized, because at Media, you know, the, the Studio B console was 20, or no, it was 18 inputs 18 channels and then then on the right that that was those are the mics and on the left it had a a remix that they called the remix section which was the monitor section and at the time when they bought the consoles 12 track was the thing right which was only a thing for about 20 minutes but yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so there were there were 12 channels there and so then they had to add on to that when it went to 16 track so then there was a box up above the patch bay on the left with with four more little knobs up there for the for 12 channels 13 through 16 and then when it went to 24 track then there was a whole nother thing that they had to add on to it you know so uh wow it was you know, it brings the uh, the term kludge to a a new meaning. <laughs> and when you were mixing, you were mixing on that monitor section, right? Or were there line inputs? On no, no, I'd mix. I I'd mix off the the input section. Okay, yeah. right. I put it in line. You could switch it over to line inputs, and uh, so and I think there was a switch on each channel. What was it that took you down to Electric Lady then? What what got you out of that um, studio? I don't remember. Somebody somebody hired me to. I can't remember what it was for, but I had to, I just I had to do a session. Somebody asked me to do a session down at Electric Lady. And I thought, well, this is cool. And then I thought about it later. I thought about, wow, when, when they went to 16 and 24 track, they didn't have to modify the, they didn't have to add anything on because it was in line. And it, I think it was a 24 channel console right. or maybe 32 at the most. And, um, like how cool is that? <laughs> it was already there. Whereas and, you know, me, poor media sound had to add all this crap on whenever they, they, we got more channels. And did that make it hard to go back, or was it just you know the gig was nah, the gig and you just, you just do what you're doing? Yeah, you do what you do. You know whatever it is. Right. So but it was really nice when media finally 
upgraded to Neve 8068s, you know, or 8088s actually. Oh, right. So, yeah, the 30, that's, wait, well, it was a th 40, that's the 40 it was actually input. There were 40 inputs. Yeah. Yeah, it was an 8068, and then they added uh, an eight more eight. with yeah. a 1081 equalizer, the bigger 1081 equalizer. Nice. Yeah, well, that's that's a bit of a change. You didn't have to crank your 10K on those. No, and it's a shame because I only worked there for another year after they got those consoles. They sounded great. I mean, those consoles, it was such a massive improvement, you know, that, um, but then I went to, to meet, to a uh, power station. Right, which is the next part of the story, really, except that I wanted to ask about something else, which I think was at Media Sound. Did you do work on a Brecker Brothers record there, or was that at Power Station? Uh, a Power Station, yeah. Oh, okay, because you've got you've got a credit for hand clapping on a Brecker Brothers <laughs> record, which seems very odd to me. <laughs> Man, I worked on this record for like a, the single for weeks. It's called uh, East River. Oh yeah, East River, la di da, and. Um, I never ended up mixing it. Um, I recorded a lot, did a lot of overdubs on it, I remember. And then, and I, you know, we did, hand, there was tracks and tracks of hand claps. I mean, you must have 40 tracks of hand claps. And so I was one of the hand clappers and that's the credit I got. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Could have given me some sort of engineering credit. That would, would have been, been nice. nice, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Because that was that was a big, that was a big hit. I mean, that was it was a real crossover thing for them. Was it? Yeah, it did. I, <laughs> I mean, for that. considering, I mean, well, I was a jazz trumpet player, not a very good one, but so for me, I followed the Brecker Brothers very, very closely. So maybe it wasn't right. quite as big outside of the people who already knew about him, but it definitely was one of the ones that seemed to cross over outside ah, of just right. the straight jazz world. It was a good song. I thought it was a pretty good song. Uh, a guy, a bass, the bass player named Neil Jason produced it. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, that was a diff difficult project. Right. For various reasons relating to drugs. Yes, yes, <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. So, the, oh, if you, hey, wait a minute, wait, hang on uh, one sec. If you were a trumpet player, then you know about May Maynard Ferguson. I absolutely know about Maynard, and he's on my list because he's another power station session. I definitely That's one of about the, that. One of the last records I did at, at Media was, uh, oh, right. was Maynard Ferguson. You know, Whoa. so that was a really fun record for me. Let's hear a little bit about that because, yeah, he's, I mean, you know, he's Maynard. Was with uh, the, um, Oh, was the drummer's name? I'm, I'm blanking out on the drummer's name. Very really famous jazz drummer. Uh, I won't uh, get it right if I try. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, I feel terrible because uh, he, he actually did something just at, at Apogee Studios the other day. And uh, he endorsed some, some Apogee products, I think. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, in my mind. That's all right. Know, Maybe. It's, yeah, my mind's gone from not doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, that that was, you know, it's just it was a big album for that I got to do all on my own, you know, at at uh, media, and that was really fun. And was it? It was big band. Yeah, it was, well, pr pretty big. You know, it was a big big rhythm section, and I don't remember exactly, but. Uh, it was good. It's a good record, I think.
Yeah. I'll well, have to go back and listen to it, see if it really was. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it was. So, um, so okay. So in 77, Tony Bon Jovi is leaving media because he's had... I, I love that Ed Stasium really was not a fan of the Disco Star Wars thing, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it did pretty well for Tony, didn't it? I mean, that was, he had other yeah. disco stuff. He'd had some big hits, but I mean, that track was gigantic for him, right? He, he did really well with that and, and with Gloria Gaynor because he produced Never Can Say Goodbye, which is a big hit for her. And so, yeah, he had, he had done, he had some money and, um, he came to me one day at media and he said, look, I'm thinking of building my own place. Do you want to, do you want to be part of it? Do you want to uh, work there? He, he wasn't asking, he wasn't offering me to be a partner. Right. <laughs> he said, do you want to work for me basically? And I said, yeah, okay. I was a little disappointed with media sound because they, they could have done some improvements that they never did. And, um, and it was always a, a little bit, annoying that you know i just always thought the studio could have been better than it was and uh, <clears throat> and so i said well yeah okay i said look what can i help design it he said well sure i said can it be a rock studio because i knew he was just really into r&b pretty much and he said look it could be any kind of studio you want as long as people come and work there i don't care <laughs> i said great and so uh so, you know, then we went out looking for buildings and right. we, we spent, um, you know, a couple months looking for buildings and then finally came across this, this building that was an old TV studio. Originally it was a, a Con Edison substation and it was turned into a um, TV studio where they used to do Let's Make a Deal, which is a big uh, show and game show back in whenever in the sixties. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I walked in there and it's like, wow, this is great. It was a huge, you know, a, a enormous sound stage and and it was a pretty big building. And then I walked in into this extra stairway that they had. There, there was there were two main stairways and one of them was like a fire exit. And I walked in on, on the third floor and I clapped my hands, of course, and it went. Yeah, this is the place. You know? <laughs> so, Tony, can we turn that thing into an echo chamber course you know and uh so that was that and had you been able to work on much rock stuff at media sound uh not that much i mean i started getting into punk rock i had this girlfriend that was really into the the lower east side punks you know cbgb's and maxes right. and all that and we'd go down there every weekend and um it was just fun it was this is fun a fun kind of music it was just really loud and brash and and you know it wasn't certainly wasn't about musicianship because at that time of the 70s you had bands like sticks and and whatever you know these steely dan and these real musicians rush you know yeah and uh this is just the opposite of that completely <laughs> and uh and it was just fun and I just liked it because of that. And and some of the bands had fun, you know, funny lyrics, and I always liked lyrics that were. That's why I was really into this band called the Tough Darts, and you know they had lyrics like, uh, uh, "I'd rather slash my wrists and cut my throat than have to spend the night with you," you know, and stuff <laughs> like that. And you, your love is like nuclear waste. 
they ought to stamp <laughs> contaminated right across your face. <laughs> you know? I mean, That's Punk rock, man. I, I got I got one for you. This is not from a punk band. This is from a band called Motorcycle. There's a rock trio from Norway. Um, but on their like fourth record, they've got a, the chorus of the song is "I need you like I need gangrene," which I think <laughs> yeah, fits right go. in with those lyrics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I love that stuff. And so we, we ended up producing Tough Darts, and then we did um, a couple. Of, there was a band called the Rosillos from Scotland that we we did on Sire Records, but then Tony had made a, some sort of a deal with Seymour Stein at Sire, Sire Records. And so we did a few of those bands. And um, and Tony, of course, produced a Ramones album and a, a Talking Heads album. Right. And I actually ended up recording part the, of one of the Ramones albums. Yeah, the first day. you Yeah, because Ed was saying a couple of weeks ago that his his second child, I believe, was born on the first day of tracking, if I'm getting this right. And so you set up at in. Sun Dragon, like the most dead studio in the, on the planet. Yeah. Right. And the thing, the thing was that, that would la was it last year, a couple of years ago when they did this reissue, um, Eddie called me up and said, oh, we'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on what that was like recording and i didn't remember doing it <laughs> i had no recollection of uh, and i was a fan too i was a i was a ramones fan i mean hey i still am look. wearing the shirt <laughs> yeah and uh and i had no recollection i said are you sure i don't remember really doing that he goes no no and he sent me the track sheets with my handwriting and my name on it <laughs> you know? go, wow how about that okay <laughs> It's funny. Never got a credit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he he was talking about it where he wasn't really aware of what they were doing and came in after that first day. And so to come in after a day on a tracking session is always a little weird because there's always some momentum and you don't quite know what's going on. And you sit down and like, okay, you hit play. You have no idea what's going to come out. And then all of a sudden, it's the Ramones. Right. And he said it took right. a minute and then he got it. But yeah, yeah, that it was really almost disconcerting at first because it was just not what other people were doing. Yeah, no, that's for sure. No, I mean, I mean, they were just—they were great, man. They were so great. <laughs> you know, I remember going into CBGBs for the second set, right? Like, and people are coming out of the first set, and you'd say, "Say, how how are the Ramones? Are they good?" Oh man, they were really fast tonight. They're really fast. <laughs> that meant they were good, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and was that it? Was it weird for Tony to be producing that? I mean, just considering. Yeah, kinda. So how did that? Was it just because he could sort of pick and choose what he wanted to do at that point? Well, it was Sire Records, you know, and so basically Sire was saying, "Look, can you can you produce these guys?" And he goes, "Yeah, okay, right." And um. <clears throat> And then he became friends. Well, actually, we both became friends with Tommy Erdelai, who was the original drummer and who formed the band. You know, he who's a really good guy, you know, and uh, he used to be around Power Station quite a bit just as a as a sort of a friend, you know, he used to hang out sometimes. Right. And, uh, and so so uh, it was that, you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty good. So you get into Power Station. And then, like, the first 
gig you're supposed to be working on is chic right right and is this another one was tony supposed to be there or this was <laughs> this was no longer tony not showing up this was definitely supposed to be you on those no sessions. no no it was it was me I, okay I, I was on i actually knew the manager because i had had produced an album for for the same their same the same manager right like just before that and um so they had actually i think they'd actually asked for me i think i'm not sure i know bob walters the tony's partner said okay we have our our first session and you're on it and but it's an electric lady because the studio isn't isn't ready yet there was no glass in the windows and there's still eddie evans was still wiring it up okay so we did the first couple of sessions down studio b and at electric lady and then came up they finally got they got the, the one iso booth working and a talk back <laughs> right we came up and finished finished the album there and is this um, because Ed was talking about having to do some sessions only at night because the workman would be in all day? Was this still sort of in that phase of the studio? So you're only just working at night on that stuff? Could have been. I can't. I don't remember that, but pro that that makes sense. Right. It's probably true because they were still working on it. And you were doing there was no window and no no front window was plywood in the, in the front. Right. Yeah. And this was the chic, but also doing the Sister Sledge sessions and this was kind of all at the same time no that came later that, that was, was later okay album. okay yeah this is their first album they were finishing they had already had had dance 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 was already becoming a hit that um somebody else had recorded and mixed and so we were just doing overdubs on tracks that were that were done already oh right okay and did you end up doing any mixing on that one uh yeah i did yeah, I mixed the everything. I think everything but the single. Right. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. But uh, I'll, I mixed a lot of it. Yeah, because we we finished the album, and then yeah, then I had to mix it, and then they came in and did the La Freak album, which, of course, yeah, you know, just was huge. Yeah. And then and they did we, they did that record and the We Are Family album in four nights. They cut all the tracks. Just both those records in four nights. And did they know which tracks were for which at that point? Or they just like, we got these songs and we're doing them? I, I don't think they did, actually. I think they figured that out afterwards. I don't, they didn't really have lyrics for most of them. Right. You know, they just, they were basically tracks. And um, I, I certainly didn't know which was for which. Right. And when they started doing vocals, then they sorted it out. You know. Right. And amazing vocalists too i mean just oh yeah crazy well they're singers i mean luther vandross is one of the singers david lasley and then um, um fonzie thornton and what was her the other girl's name uh lucy I forgot her last name but um yeah they were amazing and they did most of the i sh shouldn't say this but they did a lot of the sister sledge stuff too i mean kathy sledge is the main singer and so she sang all um, nearly all the the lead vocals, right? And the Sheik singers did a lot of the those backing vocals, right? Well, because yeah. did did they know they were doing two records at all? Do you think? I mean, was it that always the plan that they would split them up, or did it just kind of happen? I don't. 
who knows? You'd have to ask Niall. I, I really don't know. Yeah, it's fine. I suppose when you're question. working that fast, like you wouldn't know. Everyone's so used to taking forever on things now that like it would have come up. But yeah, when you're doing that. Well, I figured they must be doing a couple of records because there was a, a lot of songs that were, you know, but they cut uh, four evenings. I mean, you're talking starting at 7 p.m. With setup. To, yeah. Yeah, to midnight or one and getting four albums of basic tracks finished. I mean, it's, and you're talking bass, drums, guitar, um, vibes, piano, and some sort of per other percussion. So it's a full band, you know? No click track. <laughs> right? And really well rehearsed, I'm assuming. I guess so, yeah. I think they were. Really, yeah, they must have really re rehearsed. I guess they did. And was yeah. it just like one or two takes moving on to the next one kind of thing usually? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. God, just incredible. Yeah, no, not lots of takes. No, I mean, they spent forever on the vocals. Right. Because Bernard Edwards would just, he was Mr. Vocals. And, uh, and there was one time they were working on a song <clears throat> and I remember now coming in and say, oh yeah, play that such and such song and and he just had me almost loop it just oh just play it over and over and and i i thought he was working on the arrangement or something and then i i walked around the console and he's actually writing the lyrics and just before the vocal session right <laughs> he was writing the song <laughs> it's like crazy Man. and what was really amazing to to see this guy this young he was a kid, you know, and we were all kids actually at the time. And he's got the first strong, first, what do you, what would you call it? The, the, uh, the best string players. I mean, the, like the New York Philharmonic, all the top string right, like players. First chair from every section. That's what yeah. I was trying to, the word I was trying to say was first chair. And, um, you know, this guy, David Nadian, who was, he was the concert master, you know, the, the guy that everybody tried to get. And here's this young kid, this young black kid that they didn't know who he was, you know, and he arranged the strings and he was amazing. I was just what, you know, I talked to him after he says, yeah, I was really nervous the first time, you know, in front of all these guys. And, uh, and, uh, but the, he got their respect almost immediately because he knew exactly what he was doing and he would somebody would play something wrong and go no no that's wrong uh, change change this note to such and such you know right i mean the, the, now really knew what he was doing i mean just brilliant yeah and so it was it was fun to, to watch that to see that happen and he i mean you know he didn't invent that type of string arrangement but he certainly moved it forward i mean all the arrangements on the, those records are incredible it's not just like stock yeah. stuff there's a lot going on yeah. Yeah, and he really they were really good at uh at leaving leaving room, you know, leaving space and not filling everything up with a with the lick and uh they're pretty pretty great, pretty amazing musicians. So, and, and also good guys. Some of the some of the most fun sessions I've ever been on too. Really? I mean, Niall is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Yeah. It's hysterical. That's Sorry, great. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, you're that's you're supposed to. <laughs> that's that's your gig on this. Um, I was just going to say because also those are um, great sounding records too, but not um, they're. I mean, I haven't listened to them in a while, and I should have listened to them right before we started. But they're pretty dry. 
right? I mean, there's not a lot of ambience going on around the, the rhythm section, certainly. And I mean, this was the style for that stuff. But had you started thinking about having a sound that you liked for things? Or were you just for each project, what was going on was what was going on? I'm just curious when you started to think about kind of shaping sound for records as you went. Well, it was never premeditated. <laughs> uh, it's just what it was, you know. And I mean, it was always, it's always been, and still ha- is, I think. You hear the music, and that just tells you what to do with the sound. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, for those records, we we didn't use the big ambient room for the drums. We put the drums over in the, the rhythm room, which is a much tighter kind of sound. And um, there are drums, and I would always tune them between takes. I would take the key away from Tony Thompson, and 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 I said, "Look, just don't don't," because there are drums. I bought I had bought the drums for the studio, and um, I'd go out there and tweak them, and then, and then which I would just try stuff, like with with Niles guitar, and and I don't know, I just <laughs> so how how could I make this sound better? That's all, all right. You know, but, uh, you know, I knew it had to be pretty tight um, sound. I mean, I'd kind of, my training at Media Sound was R&B records because I made a, we did a lot of R&B records there, Cool and the Gang, right. of course. And so I had some idea. I knew it wasn't a rock band, but then, there were, you know, I always, I was a rock kid. I listened, when I was a kid, I was into British rock mostly. And so I had that sort of influence. And Niall did too. Niall used to hang out with Hendrix. Right. And so he was he was into he and I were very similar in in what we liked. And so that, that really worked out right. so well, I think. And did you did you ever like I don't even know what I'm asking really. It's more like because you've got these sounds in your head from listening to all the British rock, but you're not working on records like that at all. Were you kind of waiting for your moment to try and start making records that sounded like that, or it didn't? It was just you like one thing, you work on stuff. I, I just wonder how much you were sort of chasing your own vision of like the records you wanted to make. Uh, I wanted to make rock records, to be honest. You know, I mean, the chic thing was fun, but. Um, I was more into, okay, when do we get to the rock records? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because, I mean, God, making the Sheik records was, was fantastic. And, I, and I'm really proud of them. And I'm, and I, and I'm so glad that I was able to be part of that. But I, 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 I grew up listening to rock music. I mean, I loved Motown and all that stuff as a kid. and and But rock is my main thing you know the beatles and the stones and traffic and the who and tinks you know like that kind of stuff is what i was my kind of my main thing that i listened to right well but so the work on um on the the chic and sister sledge stuff actually kind of led you to the stones right i think it did yeah because yeah uh because because uh, it was Atlantic Records, which was the Stones were on Atlantic, and then there was an A and R guy over there that I think suggested, because because uh, they had the Stones had done Miss You, and it was sort of a dance type record, and they wanted a twelve inch dance mix from it, and I think this guy over at 
I forgot his name now, but of course, as I forget everybody's name, um, I think he suggested, oh, we'll try this guy Clear Mountain. You know, he's been doing these chic records and Sister Sledge. And and so then they, they I did a, a, 12, a 12 inch for Miss You. And then Mick really liked it. He said, I want you to just do a single as well. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, that's that's what start, got me started with them. That's great. And for the people who don't know, because I think they hear 12-inch mix or whatever, and they assume it's a remix sort of thing. But this is, you almost never yeah, added stuff though, right? This was all using their raw material and then just arrangement, yeah. basically. Doubling up sections, yeah. breakdowns, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a sort of a kind of a formula where you'd, you'd mix the record up to the like the middle eight, and then you'd you'd go back to the first verse and take a bunch of stuff out, take all the vocals out, and and maybe just break it down to the drums and percussion, and then add things in, and then you know take things out, and and then you make it longer. Basically, usually it would be a four minute record, and it would end up being seven or eight minutes for a on a twelve inch single, and they play that in in the dance clubs, right? So that you know it would go on for a bit, and. Uh, you know, we used to do that a lot. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't like remixes are now, where you you just disassemble yeah, just give me things the vocal and, and that's it. Add, right, and add all this other stuff to it. No, we didn't add add things. You know, some you might add a tambourine or something like that, or a bit of percussion, but that would right. be about it. And so Mick obviously liked it. I mean, especially doing the the single version. So how different was the single version from the album version on that? Not it's not that much different. The only thing is that I I didn't realize it was I think that the track sheet was mislabeled or something, so I didn't know there was a sax. <laughs> and so unfortunately, I left. Uh, I think it was Sonny Rollins or somebody like that. Wow, it was a sax solo that I I didn't. I just left it off and I didn't <laughs> leave it off on purpose. It was a mistake. But for some reason, Mick was like, "Yeah, yeah, we didn't need that sax." Wow. Okay. <laughs> I didn't find out until later, until afterwards. That's when really I heard the, funny. When I heard the, the album version, I went, well, oh, there's a sax on there? Where was that sax? I didn't know about that. <laughs> Man. Well, and obviously that, that led to an unbelievably long relationship with the Stones. Yeah. And yeah, well, then they, they did, uh, they were, <clears throat> next album was Tattoo You, and... Uh, I was like, I named, um, they had an engineer that had, re I guess, recorded a lot of it and was, um, had mixed a couple of songs, but had mixed one song, I think. And he couldn't, he had to go do something else and he couldn't finish it. So they called me up and, and so I finished it. You know, we, we did a few overdubs and, uh, remember we had it, we, he had a, we did the vocal for Start Me Up and a couple other songs and some percussion, things like that. Right. Well, and unless I'm I'm making this up, which the internet sometimes makes things up and then I repeat them, but it was called Start It Up, right? When you were working Yeah, originally on it? it was called Start It Up. Yeah. Yeah, it was about a motorcycle. You know, he brings it in and he, he sings it to me in my, in my ear, right? We're standing in the control room and he's shouting. I mean, he's got a really loud voice, man. <laughs> And he's screaming it in my ear. Start it up, sir. It's about a motorcycle. All right. And so I said, well, go out, 
Go out in the studio and sing it. <laughs> yeah, use a microphone. Get away from me. <laughs> and, uh, so he goes out and sings it, and somewhere in the in the outro of the song, he just sang "Start Me Up." And all of a sudden, I go, "Start." Well, that sounds so much better. And start it up. It just sounds better. And then I started. I just started thinking, "Well, start me up." Then there's like this kind of sexual thing. And when he came in to play playback, we listened back to it. And when it got to that point, I said, listen, where you said, start me up, that it kind of sounds cool, you know? And he listens, he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. And then he went out and he sang, start me up. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't my idea. So don't get me wrong. No, but no, no, him. no. But picking up on something I like just that. Kind of and, and also, I mean, out. you being a British rock kid it's got to be i mean you obviously had already been working with him but still it's got to be a little intimidating like okay now i'm recording vocals with nick and i'm making a stones record so it takes some balls to actually like hey man what about that so that's right that's good were you worried at all or no it's funny what happens though because you know, at first, when you somebody like that walks in the room, holy shit, I'm sitting next to Mick Jagger, you know. But then after you're working for a while, they become it becomes like any client. If it's Springsteen or whoever it is, it's just it's just a you know you're just doing a job. You know what I mean? It's not unless you sit there and think about it. You're not thinking about it. You're thinking about okay, what do we have to do to make this a proper record you know what do i have to do to yeah. make it good and uh and not only that but jagger's great he, he's very easy going really and he's you know he'll listen to whatever you have to say he listens to ideas i mean once in a while he'll just go no no i don't want to do that we're doing it like, we're doing it like this right okay yeah great you know and uh he's a real pro i mean he's just that's who why he is who he is he, he's he knows what he's doing <laughs> yeah Definitely, and he'll take he'll take suggestions for sure. And I've, and I've talked and about Springsteen's like that too. I've talked about this a few times, and I think for a lot of the more successful artists, the studio is the one place where they get treated like normal people, and they just are doing something because they're working on it, and it isn't some weird contrived situation. And the more the the really successful engineers are the ones who treat them like normal people. Yeah, it seems no. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, because if you're sitting there and you're always like, oh, my God, and you're asking questions about, oh, what about that girl you went out with back in <laughs> 79? And, you know, like, dude, get away from me and leave me alone. Yeah, because that's the rest and of so, it. And I, I, it's funny because I've been with I remember I had this girlfriend years ago who was she was well, she wasn't really a groupie, but she could have been a groupie. <laughs> and. She would go, oh, whoa, what did, what did Nick say? Did he talk about such and such? I don't know. I, I didn't ask. I don't care about any of that stuff, you know. I care about making the record. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I don't even think of, of bringing up scandals or whatever it is that somebody's got a problem with. You know? No. So, obviously, that went well. Tattoo You went quite well. And, yeah. Um, like I, I said before, if we just go chronologically, like we'll come back to some things because I know like Dusty's going to get really mad if we don't talk about Roxy Music and Brian Ferry for a while. And Dusty Wakeman <laughs> okay. gets what Dusty Wakeman wants. But 
let's just continue talking about the Stones for a bit because I mean you've had such a long relationship with them and they've obviously they've gone off and they've made a bunch of records with Don Was and obviously they had the history before you got involved but you've kind of been there <coughs> since then on and off the whole time and lots and lots of live things I and mean, I think one of the few times I saw you you know 15 years ago as we crossed paths in an airport and you were coming back from recording some of the live concert stuff that was going to be in the Scorsese film and like you've just done so much for them I'd love to just hear about kind of the relationship you've got with them as a band over so many years of their career well not not much a relationship as a band you know like really? I've never worked with them as a band in the studio which I, I would love to do but you know, um, Don's been working with them, and he's got this guy, his engineer, uh, Chris Sharma, who's very good. He's really excellent at what he does. And I think he makes the, the, that blues album. He did a great job. And um, so I'm the kind of the mixer. And I'm, I mean, lately, the last 10 years or so, I've been the guy that does all the, um, the live stuff, you know, the live concert videos, right. things like that. And, um, you know, not so much. I mixed a few st studio things. We we mixed this one um, unplugged thing album. I forgot what it's called. Stripped and uh, a few things here and there. You know, I've been trying to get Don to oh let me mix some of these album stuff. <laughs> but whatever, <laughs> that that's fine. You know, right? And um, um, but. Yeah, I mean, it's been a good, I've just done, done it's more the live stuff I, I've done with them. You know, I recorded, I did two movies for them. I did that, um, whatever it was called back in the 80s, which was a terrible movie, but it's not much much of a record either, really, I don't think. <laughs> but, uh, and then the Scorsese movie, which I think that, that one could have been better too, personally. But uh, that was a fun project, though, you know, between working on the Stones and recording it at the Beacon Theater, um, which is a f fun place to record. It's down the street from where I used to live and right. my old neighborhood. And um, and Scorsese is a trip. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're sitting there between Mick Jagger and Martin Scorsese. They're telling you what to do. And I'm telling them that I remember the, the last day of the, doing the film mix. There was a problem with the, the console and uh with the automation and it it had turned keith's guitar down called, like a db and uh i said no so, something's wrong and they're looking at me like no no it's fine what do you what do you mean i said keith's guitar is not as loud as it's supposed to be and and mick is like keith's plenty loud enough give me a break you know <laughs> and and scorsese goes well, I don't know. It sounds fine to me. I don't know what you're talking about. And I go, sorry, guys. Here, here's these two, Scorsese and Jagger, telling me I'm full of shit, right? And I go, look, I'm really sorry, but I asked the engineer, I said, could you just check? And he checked it out, and he goes, wow, yeah, yeah, it's off, it's off by about a dB. <laughs> well, well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, though that's, I mean, and that's one of the weird things about so many of the Stones records. I mean, the story is you can always tell who was in the control room last because it's either Keith's <laughs> guitar is really loud or the vocals really loud, but right, never both. Yeah. 
It's, it's right, always exactly. one or the other. So Mick's probably just saying, man, that sounds exactly like all the songs I was in the control room last for. That's perfect. Right. Let's go with yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it, it was fine. And, you know, I mean, there's always stuff like that. Scorsese always wants everything louder. <laughs> he's just, he's a, like, um, he's an interesting character. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we can talk more about him if you want, or we can move on. No, no, it's so, okay. I okay. Move on. All right. Well, okay. So we can come all the way back to 79 then and get into Roxy Music because that's, it's right after the Miss You uh, dance mm -hmm. mix, I believe, that you mixed a song from uh, Manifesto right mix dance yeah. away dance away so how'd that come about what was the what's the story with that i i don't know i mean i, I can only guess that it's once again somebody at atlantic records recommended me or it, it might have been actually the band uh, brian ferry had heard some of the she he was a big chic fan you know he, he really liked those records and uh probably was was that and this this record uh dance away and they they didn't come over for it they just let me do it and then um i was like i had a problem with the drums at the time i think and so i hired um andy newmark to come in and and redo some some of the drums or the bass drum or something i can't remember exactly what it was and uh that kind of made it made it flow a little bit better and and then i remember ama erdogan came in when I'm mixing this, this single. <laughs> and it was really funny because the originally the song, the format was there was an in intro verse, chorus, verse, and then it went into the bridge. There wasn't a second chorus before the bridge. And Amit says, you know, you know, there should be a chorus before that bridge. Why, why, how come, why are we missing a chorus? I go, well, that's just the way the arrangement goes. I think, you know, I mean, it's, it works. He goes, no, 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 you got to stick a chorus in there. Just just chop a chorus in that bridge, just before that bridge. <laughs> Jeez, okay. And so I did a little, you know, it was all quarter inch tape or half inch tape. And, uh, you know, and I really liked it the way it was. Right. <laughs> so that's how much I know. <laughs> and of course, of course it worked perfectly. And he was right, he was absolutely right. And everybody, Brian and the band was quite happy about it because then it, be, it was a hit. Right. And it was probably because of that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Amit was not, not a dumb man. No, no, a very smart guy. Yeah, very smart. And so was that kind of one of the first times when someone had come? Because that wasn't a dance mix. This is a single mix. And right. was that one of the first times when you were just hired to mix something purely for mixing sake and not because, you know, you had worked on the record or not or whatever? I'm uh, just wondering when that kind of started. He could, well, I can't remember which one. Uh, I, the Stones one was probably first, I guess. I'm not, I'm, oh man, it's cloudy, you know? Right. I but I mean, but that one but came yeah. out of doing the dance mix, really. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I was starting to do things. I remember at Power Station, <clears throat> people had started asking me to, to mix albums, specifically just, you know, things that I hadn't actually even recorded. And, I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, people just want me to mix stuff. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, and I remember my manager at the, well, no, that, that came later. Yeah, because I started producing and I had this um, 
Oh, now I'm getting confused. That's no, no, you got me. <laughs> well, 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 we can come back to that. I should have run video. I should have run videotape through all that. <laughs> yeah, kept well, a journal. That would have been. Well, yeah. there's, there's, you know, we can track it a little bit because also right around this time you worked with uh, with Ian Hunter as well, right? Oh yeah, right. This is the early days of Power Station. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, because it was on the Tough Darts album that Tony and I produced. Tony and Lance Quinn and I produced um, that they were friends with Ian Hunter and Ian came in and, and did some overdubs with them and, and uh, I think sang some vocals or something on, on their record. And so we became friends and he loved the studio. You know, it's this brand new studio. Studio A was, only, was the only thing that was finished. Studio B was just a big empty space. And... Uh, I remember I used Studio B for an echo chamber. I'd set up some speakers and and some microphones in there just to get the ambience because it was just a big concrete room basically. And um, I think Ian really thought that was a cool thing, <laughs> right? You know, and uh, and he we we sort of got along. And then he, then he was doing his record called "You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic." And he hired the basically the E Street Band as as, as backup band, other than uh, Roy Benton because obviously Ian played piano, and um, that's that was my introduction to the E Street Band, right? Because they loved the studio, right? And the Ian's record did pretty well. It was one of the first big rock records that I I got to do, and you know we had the room mics for the drums, which was a new thing back then, and. Um, uh, and the, I remember the, the guys in the E Street band, especially Max, the drummer, was like, "Wow, I can play my drums and I can hear them." Right? <laughs> you know, because it was this big ambient. It was an ambient room. It was designed for that. Because because Media Sound had a was a, a a small church. It was like a chapel, and it had a great ambient sound. And so we used to record drums in there. I'd done a, a record by a band called the. Uh, uh, the Climax Blues Band at Media Sound, and we used, we used it. I put mics up in the ceiling and um, used it for ambience, and and so I started getting getting into that thing, trying to make my record sound like Led Zeppelin, of right? Course. And um, but so then I we kind of designed Power Station with that in mind, and uh, and so the E Street Band loved it. They went back to Bruce and they said, "You got to check the studio out." So he came in and, and we recorded a couple, the first couple of songs for the river. Right. So that went on from there. And this is still because you talked about um, Media Sound not having. Uh, well, actually, I don't even think we mentioned. I've talked to so many people who've worked at Media Sound, but they there's no such thing as a lockout there. There were daytime sessions, nighttime sessions, but you couldn't book the whole thing, and that was carried over to to Power Station. Power Station, right? Yeah. And was this just because there was so much money in jingles and in turning stuff over that it would have been economic suicide to not to let people lock it out? Or what was the thing? Or is it just that's the way it's done? As far as I know, the, the thinking was that you could have twice as many clients if you didn't lock anything out. If you could have two sessions in each room a day, you'd have you wouldn't have to turn away as many clients. You could have things going all the time. And it's more money. You could run, you could go all night. You could charge more, you know, because you're you're booking more hours. Yeah. And uh, I guess so. You know, it, 
it, it kind of put me off because when I started working with Holland Oats, they wanted to lock out the studio and they wouldn't do it. And so I said, okay, well, Electric Lady will. Right. And, um, and Daryl liked Electric Lady better because it was on 8th Street and he could go out and buy shoes on breaks. Because <laughs> <laughs> it had all the, all the shoe stores on 8th Street. And, um, you know, so that, that's when I started working in other places, really. Right. I mean, that's it, the, it, and that's a common story. And it, it's weird is because not that many years later, it was really weird to think about not being able to lock out a studio. I mean, a band having to tear down every day, that is insanity by 92. Well, especially Springsteen, because Springsteen had a, it was a full band. You know, we'd set the Max up in the big room and then we'd have to set up a, a whole booth for Bruce right in the middle of the room out of Gobos and um, blankets and stuff. And so he was in the middle of the room and then the piano was back in the piano room. The guitars were back in the, the rhythm room. Gary Talent was out here. And then set, um, Clarence was in the ISO booth over on the right. And um, so it was a big, it was a pretty big setup. And we'd work during the, they'd, well, they'd work during the day and um, I'd have to break it all down for the night session. It's a, unless the night session was just a mix. And then, of course, there wasn't as much right. of a problem. But if it was another r rhythm, you know, a rock band or an R&B band, you'd have to break it all down. So it was a it was a big hassle. And not only that, but that back then, the tape machines all had to be a real, right. real line because people would use different types of tape and different – there was – uh, the 206 level there was a there was a plus six level yeah. and gp9 456 yeah. yeah we usually used 3m tape most of the time which is good because it didn't didn't get sticky later <laughs> right but um but yeah you know people had their own alignments right and so maintenance it, it was like an hour changeover just for maintenance right um, and did you only have an hour between sessions Usually it's an hour, hour and a half, something like that. That's it's just insane to think about having to tear down a huge band setup and possibly set up a, another huge band setup. Sometimes you did, day. yeah, yeah. It tried to they tried to book them so that you wouldn't. It wasn't a total changeover, you know. Right. But um, like maybe the you know the day session would be be tracking and then the night session would be a vocal overdubs or something. Right. You know or. Just and was overdose. there was there any part of the setting up fresh each day that was good? Was there anything about that that you felt like there was a positive outcome from that? No. Okay. Good. <laughs> I didn't think so, but I thought I better ass. ask. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I mean, no, <laughs> not really. Because you were always trying to get back to what you had, right? Or Pretty much, you know. I mean, I didn't mind setting up the the console again. I mean, we wouldn't write down EQ settings, it's, and the, and the Neve eighty sixty eight. It's so easy to dial stuff in. I mean, you yeah, know, it's it's pretty straightforward. So that that's no big deal, right? But uh, I sometimes we would write down patches if we had some certain things patched, you know. Yeah, but like I, I mean, you, I suppose you'd try to structure the sessions that you didn't do too many things on the same song on different days. But obviously, it's going to come up where someone wants to fix something or whatever. 
Yeah, no, you have no control. It's all that's up to the the producer and the and the artists, and they're not thinking about the setup. They don't care about that. Right, that's <laughs> our job. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I'd imagine you'd have to be cutting between takes, done on different days with different setups. And yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. sometimes. You know, so you get it as close as you could get it. Right. Right. But you try not to do that. You, you try to, you know, hopefully people could, if they're cutting between takes, they're from the same session. Right. You know. Now, you were also, you. so we talked about the stairwell. We talked about using Studio B. <clears throat> but then at one point, there was also a ladies' room you were using, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the thing. There was, the stairwell was incredible. It was just a magnificent sounding thing. And then... You know, I was I used to keep my bicycle because I used to ride a bike to work, and I used to keep it in, down in the basement. And uh, then right next to where I kept it, there were the, these two bathrooms. There was a because it used to be a TV studio, so I guess there were dressing rooms or something in the basement, probably. So they had these two bathrooms, and there was this one ladies' room that was just filled with store. You know, people were storing stuff in there, and it was all dirty and. I said, well, wait a minute, listen to this. This sounds kind of cool, you know? And uh, so I cleaned it out myself, and we found an old 4311 JBL speaker that nobody cared about, and I stuck that in there, and a couple of, um, I think, 451s or something like that. And, um, and we, I you know, cleaned it out myself, and then me and one, one of the maintenance guys wired it up to the, you know, they had some tie lines and uh, that became the ladies' room chamber. That was chamber two. So the stairway was chamber one, and that was chamber two. And um, I used it a lot. I mean, if you listen to the um, the reverb on Hungry Heart, especially in the Hammond, um, and this organ solo, that's just it's singing out into that thing. I mean, it was uh, I was always into Motown. You know, I was into that that bright, splashy, short chamber sound. So that's what I was after. Right. That. And and um, sort of did that. I mean, it wasn't quite as good as, as that, probably. But and then on, on start me up is that's all that chamber, you know. Right. And uh, you know, we, I used it a lot. The trouble with it was it was right next to the the hydraulic freight elevator, <laughs> and I think the pipes for the hydraulic for the freight elevator ran ran underneath there. And so people used to keep their cars up in the third floor before there were studios up there. And it was always the, the accountants are like trying to leave at 5.30. <laughs> and that's just when you know, you're printing a mix. Right, because your session ends at seven, keep... right? So you gotta Yeah, print. right. So you, you gotta get it printed. And so they're banging on the, or knocking on the door. Can, we, can I get my car out? I said, no, 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 not now. You just, <laughs> just give me a few minutes. Let me just, let me just run this mix. Because <laughs> I was so loud, you know, when that freight elevator cranked up, it was like, Forget about it. You couldn't use the chamber. It must have ended up on some records anyway. You know, somebody <laughs> just left. Yeah. Yeah. God. And did you do a lot of tweaking with the stairwell of like, oh, it's too long. Let me move the mic closer or anything like that. Or once it was set up, that no. pretty much just stayed. I set up the mics up in the top. I, once again, a pair of AKG 452s or 451, something like that. And uh, there were a couple of... 604E speakers, those big, big red speakers down a few stairway stairs down, pointing down so that the sound will go down and bounce up. 
And uh, the but the main part of the chamber was from the third floor landing to the roof of the building, which doesn't exist anymore. They extended the concrete uh, and steel reinforced stairs to the roof as a fire exit, and that kind of killed it. Right. So it doesn't doesn't it no longer exists. But um, but we didn't tweak it. But the thing was that it was so big that depending on the weather, it changed. <laughs> Because, like on a rainy day, oh, let's yeah. miss the ballot, right? Because you'd get an, an extra second out of it, <laughs> right? And on real dry days, then you mix the more rock stuff, you know. Right. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I sounds love, silly. I, know, I love stuff like that. I mean, Phil Brown was talking about on um, one of the Talk Talk records where the drum sound is basically U forty seven, like twenty three feet away from the kit, or something like that. But because right, of the way wow. they had the headphones running to match it up with some close mics so that people could actually play to it, they'd have to measure it every day because the delay right. time was totally different depending on the humidity and the temperature in the depending room. Depending on the weather. It yeah. really makes a big... Well, that chamber made a huge difference, you know? Because I remember thinking, wow, humidity is like 80, 90%. Let's, let's mix the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> let's mix the big rock ballot. And I'm sure sometimes that didn't really line up with the weather, did it? And like, oh, well, just no, get on no, with it. No, it didn't always, but, no. Yeah. Funny. All right. So at this point, you started producing quite a bit, right? Yeah. For, I had this ridiculous notion that I could be a producer. Well, it's, I mean, <laughs> it, it's what every successful engineer did at that point, right? Yeah. To a point. That's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, to find that, you know, I produced like 20 or 25 records and finally realized I hate this producing i really hate it it's too much responsibility it's it's uh you know i could produce two or three records a year whereas i could mix 12 records a year right you know and uh i had a much better chance of having success by just mixing and um and i liked mixing that was the thing you know i'd be producing and at the end of each each day I'd always be like, does anybody want a nice rough mix? Because that was my favorite part. <laughs> Let me just do a, a rough mix. You know, that'd be, you know, I always looked forward to that part. Whereas doing, actually doing the recording, you know, you're on the top, like, no, no, you're thinking a little sharp. No, no, you're just a little ahead of the beat. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I'm, I mean, it's, it's boring, man. It's really, and plus you get the pressure from the label and the manager and, you know what I mean? Like you're right in the middle of the, this whole, sometimes it's a political thing. I remember producing um, the church in, in Australia and the, um, the guitar player decided to quit in the middle of the album. Now, okay, now it's my responsibility. How do, how do we get this guy back into the band? <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, man. <laughs> and did you, did you not really want to be recording at that point either or was it just the production thing that you were really turned off by no, the recording i, I liked uh, no i didn't mind the recording part although it's, it gets a bit boring after you once you get sound set up it's yeah, a if little you're not producing there's not a just, lot to do during no yeah. at least if you're producing it's you know you're trying different things and you know let, let me try something different with the guitar amps and whatever but um you know i just it's just to me, mixing is for an engineer is the most creative part, you know. And uh, there's a lot of people that are really good at recording, 
Uh, and that's nowadays it's pretty simple because you don't even have to EQ anything because the digital, <laughs> you just record flat. And um, so, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I just, I, and I wasn't very good at it. I just wasn't a good producer. I mean, I've worked with guys, you work with somebody like Don was or Tony Berg or, or some of these guys and you see what a, what a good producer does and, and how there's so much psychology involved in it. And uh, I, I just never, I've never been good at that. You know, uh, I'm, I'm good at, you know, give me, give me a, give me something that's recorded and I'll make it sound good. Right. <laughs> you know so what I mean? Did you have any sort of mentors for mixing? Cause obviously at media, you're learning a lot about tracking and doing big sessions mm -hmm. quickly and all that kind of stuff. But for the mixing part, where did it, was it all just you experimenting? No, I, I shouldn't say that. That's uh I think um, Tony Bon Jovi is a pretty big influence, really. I used to love watching him mix because he would push certain things. He was very active on the faders, and he would he would find the the little hooks. You know, you'd see him push them. Oh, what's that? Oh, I see. I see what that is. That's that's an important thing. It's like a little hook. There's another little hook, and then he'll push drum fills a certain way. And and um, and then Jeffrey Lesser is another guy. I don't know if people know who Jeffrey Lesser is, but he never became real famous, unfortunately. Really talented guy, and uh, I would love watching what he did. And um, but mostly Tony. I mean, Tony knew. Is you know. I mean, he he was a bit of a minimalist. He would never walk into the studio. I don't think I ever watched him go. He he might have gone to the studio if he was producing something to yell at the musicians, <laughs> but that'd be about it. You know, he didn't care what mics you set up or anything about that, like that. Right. His whole thing was the is actually, where's the hook? Where's the important part of this piece of music? You know. Right. And uh, that's about it. The rest of it, I kind of figured out myself. I think. Right. You know? So, all, but all the musicality and chasing the song comes from Tony, then. Well, a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, just the I don't idea think all of, of it, it. But yeah, the the idea of like a... that's important. And then a lot of the people that I, I worked with, you know, producers like like Don was and and um, uh, Springsteen, I learned a lot from him about songs and about what's what are the important things in the song and what what you know, he would never tell me what to do, but he would explain to me what what was important, what was critical, and what you know how um, you don't ever want to lose con the the listener should never lose contact with the 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 character of the song the the narrative or the you know the, i could say the singer but what's the singer singing about basically right you know right and with bruce it's also his guitar playing too because like the whole song is in there no matter how many yeah. overdubs there are or anything that's funny because i was just doing a little thing uh i had done a, a a little video for mix with the masters and um i was just watching it yesterday because I, they wanted me to pr approve the video and when I, I was mixing uh born usa i got had a multi-track for born usa and and i put up bruce's guitar and he's like slamming it and he's pulling the e-string all sharp and everything and it's like and he bruce used to call that his primal scrub <laughs> <laughs> right, which I think is like such a great. He would come up with 
words like that for stuff. And, and, you know, it's really aggressive. And Born in the USA, it's an angry song. I mean, he's angry about um, how we badly we treated American, America treated Vietnam veterans. You know, he's pissed off and you hear it in that guitar, the way he's playing it. And, you know, yeah. And that's important. And that's like the important thing in that song. It sounds like a mess, but. Yeah. But without it, it's just a song. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an anthem. Right. Right. Man. Well, you want to talk about that record a bit and then we'll go back to some other stuff. We might as well. Right. Sure. Well, that, yeah. I mean, that Born in Say album is probably one of the easiest records to mix that I've ever mixed. Really? Because, the, the, yeah, well, it's mostly live. It's, the studio's, uh, it's a studio album, but the band is all playing together in the studio. And in fact, that song, I believe it's a, it's a um, live vocal. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure because you can hear him playing guitar. You can hear the blinking, blinking, you know, through the, the vocal mic and uh and so they kind of balance themselves i mean they're an amazing band in that they know they keep away keep out of everybody's everybody else's room and they know when to it's their time to shine and when it's not and um so really it's just you get basically a good balance and there's not there's not that many rides <laughs> yeah but i mean sonically there's that's not just a few microphones up in the room capturing a band. I mean, that's a, it's without being an, oh, I'm not, don't mean this like, oh, it's overmixed at all. But th- I mean, that song is mixed. There's, there's a lot going on sonically, especially with the drums and things like that. I mean, they're gigantic on that song. Yeah. Well, that was the thing Bruce just said that had everything, had to be bigger than anything. You know, the snare drum had to be enormous. You know, <laughs> and oh, that, that leads, us into um, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, what you call it? The guy I'm working with now, <laughs> um, Robbie Robertson. With Robbie, yeah. And Robbie Robertson's first album, um, Daniel Lenoir produced it, and he told Robbie, "Well, you don't want to get that guy Clear Mountain. You're gonna, it's gonna, you're gonna end up with a Born in the USA snare drum on on your whole record." <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was like to me, that was so the Born in the USA snare drum was just way over the top. So, even so, so that wasn't like you would have dialed that back. No, I wouldn't have done it like that. No, right, that that would have been too much for me. Yeah, and less slap on the vocal. I always wanted to hear him closer, and he always wanted, no, no, give me that slap on the right. But it's a a real. I mean, it sounds like it's in a stadium, in like that. And it definitely adds to the excitement of it because you feel like that one's done at a show kind of thing. So, well, yeah, that's what he wanted it to sound like. Yeah. Okay. I can do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, all right. We we're skipping over some, some stuff, but we'll, um, because the, God, there's there's so much stuff in here, I and mean, we're only sort of you in really the, did a lot of research, didn't you? I did. Well, yes, always, wow. <laughs> always. But it's so we, we got to talk about Roxy Music Avalon, even though you've talked about that record a lot. But we have to talk about that because it is for a lot of people, it is a real benchmark album for sonics, for mixing, for how to possibly get that much reverb on a drum kit and not have it 
go swimming like it's it's a pretty ridiculously large album so i suppose you should talk about that record for a minute uh yeah well that was pretty easy record to mix as well um uh i was a very i mean it's really well arranged i mean i can't mm. take all the credit because because rhett davis and um and the band and brian incredible arrangements i mean and what's interesting is that they worked on it for months and months brought it to new york the, the drums and percussion and vocals were the last things that they did before uh before mixing really i record yeah i recorded the drums and and percussion with annie newmark and um once again uh i just had his name in my head there for a second but uh, brilliant percussionist who unfortunately passed away um but um and then and then Rhett did the vocals I remember in studio a while I was doing something else in the other room and um yeah yeah it's it's wild and and the lyrics were one of the last things he he did he wrote like he would he would sing vocals but just phonetically without words right and then he'd write lyrics that matched the sounds that he made right and so he <laughs> developed know? the sound of it as he did takes yeah. and then go away and and write words so but so that record was bass guitar and keyboards and what were the program drums to play along or were there clicks it was program or? drums yeah right, right he had like a lin or something so some just like like placeholder thing. stuff yeah, exactly. And they did all, and then they fly in a lot of stuff. I mean, this is all analog, but that's back when, you know, you'd, you'd take a sound and stick it on a piece of half inch tape yeah, and make fly a mark. it in where you wanted yeah. it, like a guitar lick or something like that. And, and Rhett was a genius at that stuff, you know, it's like stuff that's so easy to do now and right in the box. But back then it was a lot of work to, you know, have to sync it up and get it in time and, you know, yeah. <laughs> And so the so were the arrangements pretty much done or did they take shape yeah. as the drums came on or okay so the songs were the songs it just they hadn't bothered yeah. recording drums yet right exactly wow and how close I, I mean this is a tiny little question but how close were the drum parts to the drum machine parts because you'd think like the feel of the song is going to change dramatically replacing that stuff but I don't even remember, to be honest. I mean, I guess if you think uh, about a lot of the songs, it's not its not really groove stuff. It's just tempo and, and feel. So I, I guess it wouldn't have changed as much, but that's incredible. Didn't change radically. I mean, that's, Annie Newmark was so amazing at that because it sounds like the band played, you know, it sounds like he was there on the original track. Absolutely, yeah. He, he's so good. Yeah, you picking know. up all the little detail stuff to push and, and things like that. Yeah. So... So you finished up all the overdubs, recorded the vocals, and then and then mixed. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't do the vocals, but the but the everything else, the drums and percussion. Right. Yeah. And so sonically, how much was that album in that spacious world when you got it? Because I mean, I would think some of the keyboard stuff was already sort of living there in the guitars and things like that. But like that's a little bit. It has a really particular bit, sound that that record. And I, I mean, I added a lot of I was really getting into delays. And of course, we had that crazy stairway chamber, which is so much of that reverb, you know, most mostly is that chamber. And um, 
but I was just really getting into doing interesting things with delays and and um, th- stuff like that and harmonizers and you know, right. I mean, it's all kind of a a basis for my plugins now. Right. <laughs> you know, all kind of started then. Um, Once yeah. Studio B opened, did you guys fight over the chambers? Um, there would be fights off over the chambers. Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, this is like you collecting the pull text in the morning. You show up like twenty yeah, minutes early of, and patch the chamber. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you'd actually have to book the chambers. You know, you'd have to book chamber one or whatever. You know, if you had wanted it for a particular thing, and um, but they had a bunch of plates too, and so they had a lot of lot of stuff. They had plates, and then there were some early digital reverbs, which weren't very good. I didn't think at the time. I, m- I remember the first time they brought in a, a lexicon, two, the original 224. Right. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, this is their thing. This is the coolest sounding reverb. You're going to love You're going to want to use this on anything. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Let's let's put it up. Well, let's compare it to our 75-foot uh, our stairway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can take that thing and <laughs> throw it in the trash, man. Just get it out of here because it it just sounded so stupid you know compared to the you know what we were used to we were like really you called it you know it's it's like a crocodile dundee reverb you call that reverb <laughs> i'll show you reverb <laughs> and then it worked out for them but not everyone had a stereo. oh it did eventually no they they got better and yeah. it definitely got better by the time they got to the 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 480 or whatever it was. Right, or sounds, even the XL, I'm sure it was, yeah. Yeah, something. I got a couple of PCM-70s, which I love, I still use. Right. So, all right, in 83, first of all, you did the Huey Lewis record, which was gigantic. Right. That was a huge record. Um, was that, again, just a mix gig? Yeah, yeah, just mixing. Yeah, really well recorded. Those guys are great, man. I mean, I just did a record for them over the last few years. It's really good. And um, uh, I mean, that Huey is just another guy. That's just what a pleasure to work with him and his whole band. Johnny Cola, you know, is the the arranger and sax player. And um, yeah, that that was really fun. It, it did really, those records did, did well, which is nice. Well, yeah, I, yeah, they did. <laughs> you had some gigantic success, and so is this when you were about to talk about something your manager was talking to you about? Is this around the time when you were like, okay, I'm a mixer? Well, I mean, it can't be really because you're also about to make Let's Dance, which you did the whole thing. But was this when it was like, okay, mixing is a thing, and I'm this is what I'm going to do? And then your manager said, well, hold on a second, I think we can do something about that. Yeah, well, the, my manager first of all he said, "Why are you bothering to produce when you could you can do a lot better just mixing records?" You know, you know, he said, "Do you like producing?" I said, "Well, well, not really. I really don't like it." <laughs> and uh, and he said, "You you can do financially much better because you can mix eleven or twelve records in a year and get it." And and then he said, "Said I can get you a point for mixing a record." And I said, "No, you a point for mixing." What are you? What kind of drugs are you taking, man? <laughs> you know, nobody gets a point for mixing a record. Um, he said, "No, nah, no, nah, I can get you a point for sure, because you're getting real popular." 
I said, yeah, okay, good luck with that. And sure enough, yeah, got me. I was the first one. And uh, okay, great. And that that then it was like, oh, you mean I don't have to produce any records? I can just mix. I mean, I still produced. I still continue to produce a few things, and right. I'm still delusional, thinking <laughs> that this, you know, and uh, but then that sort of tapered off. Right. Which is good. Well, okay, but so going away from the just mixing thing, though, let's talk about uh, Bowie's "Let's Dance" because that record, first of all, it's an amazing record, but it's also there's so much about it. I mean, obviously, it's you with Nile, and I'm assuming that Nile called you up to to do it, right? From remembering yeah. oh, from yeah. Chic stuff, and I'm obviously kept in touch in between. And so, what was the had you been working with him in between, or was this a little bit out of the blue? I mean, it hadn't been that long, but still. Yeah, it wasn't that long. It was just, uh, you know, I, I don't actually know. I just found myself kind of booked on it. And, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Niall said, oh, let's get Clear Mountain to do this, you know, because he knew I was a, a Bowie fan. And um, and that I, he knew that I'd, I'd enjoy it and probably do a pretty good job. And um, just from the stuff that that we had done with with Sheik, we had done some interesting little tricks and things with with Sheik, you know, and uh, and with Distress Ledge as well. And so that I mean that was great. That was that was such an experience because I was a huge fan, you know. I loved the, the album before that was Scary Monsters, which I just pretty much wore out. I think it was I loved it so much and. Uh, and so I thought he was going to do another scary monsters or right. something like that, you know, or, or, um, you know, even, um, young Americans, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, it was so totally different. I was kind of surprised and I thought, well, it's Bowie. Why, why should I be surprised? Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, he was great. It was so funny because the first day I remember going and setting up for the, the session with the assistant and, um, he came in early. He was the first one there. And he's kind of following me around in the studio as I was setting up mics and things. And and he's going, Do do you know this? Do you know these guys, the guys in the band? And uh I said, Yeah, I, I believe I do. I, I know I know most of them. You know, because it was Tony Thompson and Nile and um I think it was uh Rob Sabino who had played on Sheik as well as the piano player. <clears throat> he said, Oh. Yeah, because I've never met them. I said, really? You've never met the band? <laughs> he goes, no, no, I, I, I don't know. Are they good? I said, yeah, man, they're great. Are you kidding? <laughs> this is going to be great. And he seemed nervous, you know, because right. uh, he had worked out the songs with Niall. And, and Niall had gone to Switzerland, I think, and they they worked out the arrangements and the songs and everything. But he didn't, they didn't record anything, and he didn't know the musicians. And so, uh, yeah, we got three tracks the first day. Wow. Which is amazing. And that, and that, of course, power station. So it was 11 to six. Right. And then you had to tear down. <laughs> we had to tear down. Right. Wow. You know, so it's pretty quick. And that was the thing that's, that was wild for me personally. Um, if I'm making noise on this mic stand, tell me. Cause that's right. Yeah. You I just kicked it. it. That's only, yeah, only sorry happened a couple that. of times. So um, no worries. <laughs> but, um, uh, because I always like to, there were our drums once again, and I always like to go out and tune, you know, we do a take, and I go, well, let me run out and just tweak the drums and just get it right, because it, it, they weren't, 
they weren't really tuned right at first, you know, I never got a chance. And, um, and then we did a second take. We, I'm not, we second song. I never got a chance to retune. And they, they said that, that take was great. It was the first take. I think it was modern love or something. Wow. No, that was fine. Let's, let's do the next tra- next song. I was like, Oh no. It's like, Oh, what am I going to do? And so, you know, I wasn't ever happy with the, the drum sound. And so it took major processing when I went to mix the things to try to get them to sound good. I mean, no samples or anything, but just... Right. And I, I love the, the fact that, you know, if the drum sound wasn't right, it was the drum kit. Like, that's the problem. Oh, yeah. So where'd you learn how to tune yeah. drums? I just figured it out. I don't know. Because I just got obsessed with drum sounds. And that's what, the, you know, 70s and 80s were all about. Yeah. <laughs> And so I would just, I would come in at night or, you know, when nobody was using the studio and sit there and tune drums just to see what I could, I could get out of them and, and really, what, you know, what the different things were. Yeah. Wow. So other people yeah, remember, would have been I mean, like playing with a delay or learning the tape machine or something. You were learning how to tune drums. I guess so. You know, I thought everybody did that. No, know? and I wish they Doesn't did because it, it's a black art. And when it's not right, it ruins everything. Yeah. Luckily, nowadays, people, drummers are much better about tuning drums now, I think, and uh, than they were back then. And um, I don't have to do that so much. I mean, I don't record that much anymore. So I don't know. But, but most of the stuff, you get somebody like Matt Chamberlain that where it, Jesus, it always sounds so amazing, you yeah. know, or, or Kenny Aronoff. It's like these guys, they got it down, you know. Plus there's the people like the drum doctor that come in and bring all kinds of interesting drums and it's, it's become a real science. Yeah. So it's a different thing nowadays. You know, back then uh, I went out and I bought a, three sets of Ludwigs for the studio. Right. <laughs> and then when and then when I started working with Brian Adams, I remember we – uh I wanted this Black Beauty snare. I'd heard about the famous Black Beauty Ludwig snare drum, and um, and I really wanted to get one because because I everybody said that oh that's the that's what you need, and so Brian and I actually we had to drive to Sam Ash and White Plains because they didn't have any in in the city, and they we called up and they said oh well there's one in White Plains and so I drove up there with Brian and then bought one and I just used it on everything pretty much. Wow. And were you ever a drummer? No. No. No, it was, you could I just was hit him to tune a bass him. player. Yeah. So you could hit him to tune him, but you could tune him. Yeah, I couldn't play him. Wow. That's amazing. I could sort of play him a little bit, you know, but uh, not very well. So I want to go back to Let's Dance just for a second to finish up because it was, so it sounds like, like with the Chic sessions, the band, again, very well rehearsed, but it's amazing that they do one take. And David hadn't heard, presumably hadn't even heard the arrangements. I mean, he knew the form of the song, but not what parts people were going to play and stuff. And it's like, yep, one take, off we go. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah, he was into the the one take. I mean, even when Stevie Ray Vaughan came in and played a solo, it would be, and it was kind of the first time Stevie had ever heard the song. He'd play it and, and... and then he go, yeah, let me try another one. And David would go, no, 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 that's it. That's perfect. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that one on, on China Girl that kind of ends a little like, oh, that's it's over weird. Now. Yeah. Yeah, because he didn't, he wasn't sure where it ended. And uh, 
And I remember that he hit that note and because he's standing next to me in the control room. He just had one guitar cord out to his super reverb. And uh, and we looked at each other, you know, we, we both kind of winced. And he goes, oh, yeah. I go, OK, let's just punch that in. You know, and he was like, OK. And David, no, 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 it's perfect. Leave it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's amazing. And what, how did it go with, uh, was he singing along with the band during these takes? I would assume uh, so. But... He would. He, yeah. He, yeah, he did scratch vocals in, in the booth. And then when it came to do vocals, he didn't even want Niall around for some reason. I don't know why. He just said, just, it was just him and me. And right. I, you know, I just recorded him. I didn't, it's not like I was producing or anything. You didn't tell him about, you know, how you made Start Me Up a huge hit <laughs> no. and you had some ideas. <laughs> no, no, no. I just like, I just, <laughs> adjusting the preamp because, oh, that that's a good story about, I, you might've heard this story, but about uh, Modern Love. Mm. I think it was the first thing that he, we worked on, on vocals where he comes in and the first time he sang it, he sang it down the octave, like in that, that deep, kind of Anthony Newley voice, you know, that yeah. he would sing some things in, that big vibrato, deep voice. And so he sang a verse and a, and a chorus. And he, and he said, okay, hang on a sec. Let me just hear that. And I play it back to him. And he's sitting there in his headphones. He goes, he goes he's got this look on his face. No, no. Okay, let's try it again. Go back. And, um, and then he sang it, what you hear, that sort of shouty kind of, modern love you know yeah and um verse and chorus okay, okay stop let me hear that played it back because yeah yeah good okay just punch in from there <laughs> we finished the song and then doubled it that was it that's amazing <laughs> it's amazing well he I was, mean, but that he entire was record that entire record was done in three weeks right including mixing that's right that's right yeah <laughs> Which, I mean, now people have a hard time getting a snare sound in three weeks. Like, it's just, it's incredible that a record, I mean, first of all, it's it was a really successful record. But there are a lot of records that sound like, oh, man, that was probably done quick and live. And, like, even some of the Springsteen stuff, you hear the live band element to that. But that, sure. there's a huge yeah. amount of production on that record. Yeah, I know. I, that's I know, incredible. it's unbelievable. Well, between those two guys, between Niall and and David, I mean, they're just so so brilliant, and they let me do whatever I wanted, basically, which right. is great. <laughs> you know, I was putting like gated reverb on the horns and all these crazy delays and stuff. You know, and then there's that that other story, which I know you've heard. I've told this. I want to hear so it many again. Times it's, it's boring. It's not boring. It's, it's only boring to you. It's not boring to us. It's in Let's Dance, you know, Niles, Niles, look what I'm playing. I'm playing dun, 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 do, 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 dun, dun, dun. Could you put something on my guitar, like a little slap or something, just to make it a little more interesting? And uh, I said, yeah, okay. And so we had a, the tape delay going, a little Studer B67 over in the corner there. And um, But I used to try to time it somehow, you know, so it's a an eighth note or a dotted eighth or something. And, um, but I didn't have a chance to do that. He just wanted something up there. And so I figured, okay, I'll just put it up. And, and then the returns were, uh, I had him going back and forth from left to right and right to left, but I had the returns like way too loud. <laughs> and, uh, 
as a guitarist played in the way I'm like, oh shit. I went to reach for it. I said, wait, wait, hey, let me just let me just turn that down a little bit. And they both stood up and said, No, no, just leave it just like that. That's perfect. Are you kidding? <laughs> so I thought it was a mistake. You know, I thought, man, I really screwed this up. And they were like, no, 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 that's that's exactly right. <laughs> and was this during the mixing or this is while they were tracking the guitar? I think this is during the mixing. I'm pretty sure that, yeah, it was during the mixing. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe just I mean, before that's, we mixed it. That's the hook of the song, musically. <laughs> I know. And it's so funny because I've heard Niall give me the credit for it, which is crazy. Because it's really, I I thought it was, I thought I had screwed it up because it was just way <laughs> over the top and and uh, it just happened. It was an accident, really. Right. So, so whatever. When he says that, don't believe him. It's not. It was <laughs> well, my idea. but you you caused the accident, so yeah. Okay, there. Yeah, you know, it, it was, <laughs> I was you. the driver. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think this brings us to something we were actually talking about before. So was that record was cut on what? Was that Analog 24 track or? 24 track, yeah. So we've Studer. we talked about this and you've talked about it in interviews too. The whole, like, sonically, Analog tape was a bummer. Because while you're in input getting sounds, it sounded great. And then you hit right. record and then you play back and it sounds totally different. But one of the things that I miss so much about recording on analog tape was VSOing. Just, you did it yeah. all the time, percussion the time. overdubs. And so was that like a big, I'm assuming it, it was, because it's almost second nature to think like, oh, well, if we drop the timbre on that, that'll be great, let me speed the tape up, sort of thing. And <laughs> I'm assuming on that record's got sonically so much going on. Was there, do you remember anything in particular about doing that? Or was that just a part of tracking a lot of the time or? I don't remember doing anything like that on that record. I mean, maybe we did, but yeah, I don't. I don't think we were that creative, right? Well, if you could talk, <laughs> I, to, I wasn't Frank Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> but if you could talk to Betty about figuring out a way to VSO properly in digital, that would make yeah. me very happy. I think that. Oh would... man, we just we we're going through stuff on this album that I'm doing now. That I'll talk to you about that later, maybe. But. uh it's tough VSOing, you know, because uh, in digital, it's, it's much more of a challenge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You've got a much smaller range and things complain because they know. Yeah. Whereas analog stuff didn't know. It just did what you told it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can do a certain amount of VSOing here because my print rig is separate than my multi track rig. So I can actually vary speed that a little bit and print right. it to a different thing you know but i don't know and then there's all kinds of i mean you know there's elastic audio now where you can very speed and it works pretty well yeah yeah all right all right let's see I'm, i don't want to get in trouble for not asking you about stuff people are asking about but you mentioned brian adams and i think we got to talk about brian because you've done a, a bunch of records with him and huge 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 records and strangely his records are not listed on allmusic.com. Like, really? According to allmusic.com, he does not exist. There's a Brian Adams karaoke record, and that's it. You're kidding. Is that because he's Canadian? Like, why are people so mean? Why? Because his records are available to listen to places, but like credit-wise, nothing. 
It's almost like That's they don't weird. exist. It was really weird. It's the first time that I've ever weird. come again. Because I was going through the discography and I'm listening to interviews and making notes and things like, hold on a second. When was the first Brian Adams? And not there. Not there. But let's, shall we talk about I Mr. wonder if Adams? he had a, maybe he had an argument with, because it used to be there. I think they used to be there. Right. But, maybe uh, it was just a bad database day and, and they're back again. I don't know. It's really And weird. somebody might, but somebody might have, maybe he said something that, um, and that someone at All Music Guide didn't like. And I guess. I mean, I could see, you know, taking them down off the streaming services, but taking them down off of a database. That's it's weird. Like, it's really yeah, I, weird. I don't, I wish I, I'm going to ask him about it. Yeah. See, and it'll turn knows. out that it was yeah. like only in Worcestershire and only on that day. Right. Yeah. But, right. But I'd love, I'd love to hear about those records because, I mean, they're, they're, with the Springsteen records, I mean, they defined that genre of stadium rock that was just gigantic, absolutely gigantic sounding. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting because when we, oh man, when we first met, it was a, a guy named David Kirschenbaum at A&M Records, an right. art guy who I had worked with, I he had produced an album that I for that I engineered for him before that. And it was Brian had come to him because they Brian had and Jim Valance had done an album in Canada that you know didn't do so well. Nobody ever heard it here in America or any anywhere out outside of Canada. And so he went to David and said in LA, said, well what what do you see can you recommend anything like somebody that I could work with maybe that could give me more of a mainstream sort of a sound. And he suggested me, which is great. I mean, I'm eternally grateful to Mr. Kirschenbaum to say that <laughs> and to send him in my direction. So then Brian came, you know, we talked on the phone. I said, oh, well, come, come to New York and let's have a meeting and let's talk about it. Came to New York, comes to Power Station and... <laughs> I just finished an Ian Hunter session and Ian's walking out and I'm having this meeting with Brian and, and, and we cross each cross in the lobby. And I said, Oh, Brian, Oh, this here, this is Ian Hunter. And then I turned to Brian and I go, what did you say your name was? <laughs> I just went blank on his name as I always do, of course. And, and to this day, he just, he just goes off on me for, for that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you won't let me forget that. And um, and now all, all everybody on online knows it too. It's so embarrassing, and um, but I really liked his songs, you know. And um, my girlfriend at the time really liked the songs, and so she, she thought I I should work with the guy. And I, I thought, okay, this will be fun. And of course, he couldn't. Nobody knew who he was. The L.A. office they didn't care about him or know who he was. So he couldn't get enough per diem for a for he couldn't get a decent hotel room in New York, right? They put him in some really flea bag place. So he ended up sleeping on my sofa for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh, he went from sleeping on my sofa to being like enormous rock star. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we, we became tight friends. We're still really good friends, even though I don't really work on his records anymore. He's more of a photographer now anyway. But, um, you know, we made some great, I uh, just had some amazing times. You know, I think back to the 
making those records and it was it was really fun and and it was a lot of work he's difficult you know because he's very picky right about what his records and that's good that's i love that you know he should be you know artists should be picky and um in the summer of 69 we recorded twice we went back and rearranged it because the first time it wasn't it uh, didn't really work right you know and uh things like that and we would re-record the guitars over and over again and you know you know it was a, a real process with him but it worked yeah and he and he's still a great singer i mean we just read he recut summer 69 just last month or so and um because i guess he can't the label still owns it you know it's one of those kind of deals like taylor swift you know right re, artists are re-recording stuff because they can't get rights to their uh, records and um sounds he sounds exactly the same wow it's unbelievable you can't you can hardly tell except that there's one drum fill that's different on this version because it's a different drummer that's and, insane um, i mean because it's yeah, that's he, you know th what is it 30 38 years did i do that math like right? that yeah yeah it's probably right yeah he sounds the same you it's sure it's in the same key like, you didn't drop it a whole step yeah. <laughs> no same key wow john fogarty still sounds exactly like he sounded when he was a kid it's unbelievable these guys are yeah but he sounded more like he was old as a kid <laughs> yeah that's true no. that's a good point you're absolutely right <laughs> a little bit a little bit. Well, I mean, obviously those records just gigantic. But look, right around the time, so you're doing, so you got Brian Adams, Cuts Like a Knife. You got the Huey Lewis records. You got Let's Dance. Well, the first, first one was the first one was You Want It, You Got It. Actually, there were oh, four. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even you got that, it, Cuts Like a Knife, Reckless, and then Into the Fire were the four that I co-produced with him. Right, but right at the same time, so the same year that Born in the USA is coming out, you also did some mixing for King Crimson. On three of a perfect pair. Oh yeah, and I am a gigantic King Crimson fan, and I really like that version of the band as well. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I don't remember much about it. Um, uh, I remember doing doing it with Tony Levin, who was a bass player, He's yeah. a great guy, and uh, I don't really remember. I remember doing it, but that's about that's about it. That's fine. I See, don't remember is, any details. Yeah. This is why I didn't want to just go no. through the, you know, the discography just record by record because so many of them are going to be like, "Yep, I got the gig to mix it. I mixed it, and that was great." But yeah, yeah, and I, and I like doing it because I like Tony a lot. I yeah, mean, great guy and an unbelievable bass player, of course, as everybody knows. But um, it was fun to, to work with him. Yeah. And so, so he was kind of in charge the... of that. So Robert wasn't there for those, or I mean, obviously he had input on it, I'm sure, but. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, they must have still been in England or something because yeah, he was. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was just it was just Tony Levin that I worked with, right. on it. Yeah. So uh, other than that, yeah, I, I wish I could fill you in. No, more no, about fair it. enough, fair enough. Well, because this brings us this brings us to uh, something that um, a young man named Dusty Wakeman wanted me to ask you about specifically is the Brian Ferry record, Boys and Girls. Mm -hmm. So for Dusty, if you don't mind, if there's anything in particular about that one. 
Well, that was that was one of the most difficult records to mix. Really? <laughs> As opposed to Avalon, which is pretty easy. You know, we mixed Avalon like two mixes a day. Wow. <laughs> Took a week. Two mixes a day on and, short uh, sessions, too. Short sessions, yeah, exactly. And um but but boys and girls was man, it was massive. I mean, just massive overdubs and little bits of music and because it was Brian instead of he he wasn't reined in by the rest of the band at all. It was just him. And he's as brilliant. I mean, he's brilliant, but kind of on the eccentric side, you know what I'm saying? And uh, so he would just go on and on and on. And uh, I remember we mixed this song, Slave to Love, I think, in three different studios. We I, mean, I think six mixes, maybe. We mixed it at Power Station. We mixed it at air in london and and i think the final mix we did it at uh, electric lady <laughs> just kept recalling it and um i remember this is there's an amazing bit in slave to love the thing that stands out to me about that was keith scott brian's guitar player plays a solo on it right and they had him play a um a guitar a backwards solo. So they turned the tape upside down and he played this backwards thing and then they turned it right side up and then he played another forwards thing. And there's a bit right in the middle where it goes from one solo to the other and they actually double each other. Wow. <laughs> Just by a sheer fluke. Right. Just, okay. So he didn't know because if someone can think like that, that would no, be No, no. He didn't. Oh, he wasn't quite Hendrix. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we were all kind of when we heard it. When we said, "Look, it's, it, 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 there was like four bars, probably not even four, probably two, three bars that were actually a double." Wow, <laughs> you know, or a pretty close double. I know that's amazing because, <laughs> of course, it, it doesn't mean he played the same thing. It means he played no. it backwards, right? Which is not he, what a guitar know. player would normally. You'd never shape things upside down melodically in your head. It just doesn't no. work that way. No, he just played something, whatever you know. Yeah tried to fit in with this music playing backwards <laughs> and uh, man anyway but th other than that just i remember falling asleep on a couch at, in studio two at air and um you know it's like seven in the morning we're still mixing it and we just haven't finished it yet it's like oh my god <laughs> and this is air it was when really it was still in oxford circus oxford right? street yeah. yeah that's right yeah, so you could hear the, we'd have the windows open and you could hear Reed Street and Oxford Street, all the cabs and everything. <laughs> yeah, amazing. That was a great studio. I loved that studio, man. It was, it was right in the middle of London. I yeah. Mean, you couldn't be more central London than Oxford Circus. No, man. it was incredible that it existed. I only got to go there a yeah. couple of times, but yeah, really amazing. I mean, obviously where it is now is pretty great too, but it's a totally yeah. different thing. No, I know. Yeah, yeah it is. It's back when great. back when records made a lot of money. Yeah. So okay, so this brings us up to 1987 ish. So we got mm -hmm. the the NXS record kick is that All right. and I don't know if that was just a mixing gig or if there's anything in particular about that because obviously a huge record. Um, well, it was Chris Thomas who had produced it in Australia, in Sydney, I believe, and. Um, and they they hired me to to mix it at air by the way in the same room that studio too 
And um, <clears throat> and Chris is, I mean, amazing producer. I think. I mean, he's made just some of the best records. Yeah, best and rock so diverse. Ever too. made. Yeah, and and he's he was deaf in one ear, you know, and uh, but it didn't make any difference. Although, if I if I mix something too stereo, he'd be kind of like, "Did you pan something over that side?" <laughs> and um, hang on one sec. Sorry, Robbie is helping. Well, yeah, tell him that we're about to talk about his first solo record. So he needs yeah. to. <laughs> Let me just see. I'm really sorry about this. No, 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 no worries. You vocal too loud. Sticks out. All right, it's getting there. It's going to take another few, right. <laughs> few passes. I should probably maybe tell him. I don't know. Um, what were we just talking about? In excess. <laughs> oh right, yeah, and um. He he was interesting because he actually had some rough mixes in the SSL that we kind of sort of recall a little bit, you know, record recall bits of them, and um, but then I'd add my own thing to them, and uh, it, I thought, man, this I really thought it was sounded like a hit record, you know, it just especially Need You Tonight, you know, um, and there was there was a song called. Uh, um, what was it? Um, one. Uh, well, there was one song where the entire mix he had in his mix, he had everything going through a. Um, was it like a an eventide harmonizer or something or some kind of a device? I think it was a harmonizer. And he had the 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 aux end cranked on every channel. <coughs> And so basically everything you were hearing was coming out of this box <laughs> and he went to change something. He went to, Oh, maybe a little less of that. I said, I don't know if you want to touch that. And he went and changed it and the entire mix changed right. and like the, <clears throat> the send on one of the things. And, uh, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. I will join you in that. So it was like a quirky, it was like a really quirky kind of, uh, a mix on, on some of those songs and uh <coughs> and um i don't know what else what, what else to say about no it. no it was, that's uh, that's fine i mean it's and at this point you're definitely established as a mixer i mean no question so yeah i'd love to now spend a little bit of time on that first robbie robertson solo record because for people who have not heard it it is an astonishing record Really, I mean, it, it. I'd been a Daniel Lanois fan since the Ambient Records. I mean, just a huge fan. But that was really the record where I started worshiping him as a record producer, and it was such an amazingly dense but spacious record. And then you were not the obvious choice to mix a Lanois record, so I'd love to hear how well, it definitely came about, not. like why it came about, and how it all went. And, and like I said, Daniel told Robbie, no, he'll put that Born in the USA snare drum all over it. <laughs> you don't want that. So and, was it Robbie's you know, when, choice? When it was uh, more, I think, um, a guy named Gary Gersh, the A&R guy at EMI Records that um, right. suggested me. And then I think Robbie listened to a bunch of stuff that I'd done. And 
he said, yeah, okay, let's try this guy. And, um, you know, of course, the, when he, when Robbie told me that about the board, in the USA, I said, no, no, that's not me. <laughs> you know, that's, that's Bruce. <laughs> and, um, but that, that was amazing. It was an amazing experience working with Robbie. I mean, I was a band. I was a huge fan of the band when I was a kid growing up. I mean, these were some of my favorite records. They, to me, they were the only really um, American rock band that I thought meant anything. You know, everybody's into like Jefferson Airplane and people like that. And I thought, man, too much reverb for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I like some of those records, but, but the band was like, these guys were doing something that nobody had done before. And, it, you know, this guy's, he's wrote so many incredible songs and, and to be able to, to work with him was like, uh, and I'm just getting notes from him now. <laughs> and, um, that's because he's watching this live stream and we're saying nice things. Yeah, probably. About him. Maybe he is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I should have told him. I should have given him a link. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so that was, and then I, I remember one of my favorite mixes was somewhere down the crazy river. Oh, yeah. Anybody hears this? Uh, I'm sitting there. I had the lights really low in the Studio B and I'm mixing this thing. And I'm, I must have mixed it in, you know, two hours. And so it's like three or four hours later, Robbie's working on some overdubs in, in Studio A in the other room. And he comes in and he's, he's going, and he goes, how's it going? I go, I go, well, I, I, I think I finished the mix a few hours ago, but I can't stop listening to this thing. You know, I was just enjoying just sitting there listening to it, you know, so much. It was just such a cool little journey, you know? Yeah. I mean, the whole album is really like, hate hate to use the, word journey it might somebody might think of some other band but <laughs> <laughs> no 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 that's a totally different thing. <laughs> good yeah but no it was a, it's just it was an incredible album to mix it was really um you know songs like um what's that opening song uh do you have the, do you oh. have the lyrics of the, the word um i could go get it if you i got the cd right next door <laughs> yeah that's all right but it was it, i mean it was a difficult record to mix and and like i was telling you before robbie has a, an idea about every 10 or 15 seconds and so you know you're just starting on one idea and then he says oh then let's do this too and okay well, hang on a sec you know and a lot of times it, it meant editing something or flying something in and we didn't have pro tools it was all analog and so it was, it was a lot of work you know you just wanted to do things that meant going back to the analog and altering what's actually on the tape. Right. And was and, he uh, doing overdubs with Daniel in the other room at that point? Or was he just... No, no, Daniel own? wasn't... Had I never saw Daniel. Oh, right. I mean, had he originally... Because he was mixing all his own productions at that point, pretty much, right? I think I mean, so, had, yeah. Had he thought he was going to mix it and then it just on it went? or Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I don't really know, but... Right. Uh, I know he wasn't really interested in having me mix it. And you know, I can understand why. But uh I was glad I was glad to be doing it. It was it was quite fun. I mean finally at the I think the last couple of sections he he came in and, and he had some some input, but uh right. not not for Well much. you'd think at that point he must have heard some of the earlier mixes too. And 
I mean, yeah, I think he was actually happy with it. I, 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 hope, I hope, it, hope he was anyway. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to describe really, but I mean, he's a producer who absolutely puts a stamp on records. Like you can smell a Lanois record from a mile away. And yeah. that record still is a Lanois production. There's no question yeah, about good. it, I'm you know, from note right. one, but it has this different dimension to the mixes on it. It's a really fantastic pairing. I mean, in a way, it's a shame you didn't mix more records with him because it's it's such a great juxtaposition, you know. I'm actually a fan. I love what he's done. I've I've seen him play a few times, you know, in concert, and he's, he's just amazing. Yeah. He does, oh, think. absolutely. Brilliant. And it wasn't too long <laughs> after that I think he did his first solo record, right? I don't know if I've got the chronology right, but anyway, whatever. Know. So, all right. Well, that that scratched an itch for me. So, how are you doing on time here? Because we're we're coming up. We're like two and a half hours Good now. Work. So, maybe another half hour. How would that wanna, be? Well, what I'm wondering is maybe should, we can do a part two. Yes, maybe. we we have to do a part two. So maybe what we could do is let's end this half my pit and then we'll do a, a little bit of q a until you gotta run if that's all right all right yeah that'd be great okay there are two albums because yeah, robbie's really robbie's really expecting me to okay to i'm gonna skip over crowded house because we're gonna come back to them because that's a big 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 subject right. but there are two records from 89 that i absolutely love that you worked on that i want to hear about one of them is the laurie anderson album strange angels so gigantic oh, yeah. Laurie Anderson fan, and that record is uh, amazing. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She really is amazing. Well, that was one of those things. It was at Bearsville once again. It's funny. A lot a lot of it goes back to Bearsville, uh, I believe. Studio Studio B there, and I remember putting the thing up and working on it for a few hours, and her coming in and me just saying to her. You know, this is over my head. This is this is the kind of music I don't I don't think I don't understand it or I don't I don't know what to do. You know, and uh, I was ready to give up because I just thought I'm not good enough for this. And she said, "No, no, you you're going to be fine." And she she said a few things. I don't know what don't remember what she said, but um, she said and she listened to what I was doing and she said, "No, you're getting there. You get it's you're you're definitely in the right." ballpark you know you're you're uh keep going keep doing what you're doing basically is what she said and uh i did and she ended up liking liking what it was and it, it it worked out but it was interesting that she didn't you know she could have said okay well forget it then <laughs> you know <laughs> and because i mean she still had a she had a lot of comments about what she wanted so it wasn't you know what I had wasn't exactly what what she was looking for at first, but she 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 liked the direction that I was going. Right, and she's one of those people that she's incredibly open minded. I think you know she's she's open to whatever happens. I mean, she's like, um, you know, let's let's see where this takes us. That kind of thing, you know. Right, and she's an amazing person. She really is. I I haven't spoken to her since then. I, I wish I would. I wish I knew her better, or I, I'd been able to get to know her better. Right, but yeah, she's real a pretty amazing artist. talent. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's a really you know, great great sounding record. And it's. I, I wonder. Do you have any idea what sort of led her to you to mix it? No, yeah. no idea. 
you know. Well, Might have been Roxy Music. I don't know. Right. Well, it was an excellent no, choice. I'm sure it wasn't Brian Adams. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Maybe she kept waiting for the, you know, Born in the USA snare. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So this is another one, and it might be slightly obscure. I'm gonna. We'll start part two with the more better known records from these couple of years here. But another record that was, I mean, I wore out a CD of it, which is kind of hard to wear out a CD, is uh, the Michael Shreve <laughs> Stiletto record, which I absolutely love. Shreve. Yeah. I remember Michael Shreve. Did I mix the whole record for him? I don't know how much of it you mix. I mean, I could go grab the CD, my replacement CD, and and we can have a look. But you definitely mix some of it. And it's uh, he's a a a drummer for like Pacific Northwest, I think. But yeah, kind of like the weird Pacific Northwest version of the ECM jazz scene. Along with there are a couple guitar players from up there and things like that. But just an incredible record. He was a friend of Jagger's, and I think Jagger. Yeah, because he played. Um, who did he turn him on to me? With aside from the, the more jazz records, he was in a band as well. And now I'm spacing on who it was. But anyway, I'm just curious if you got anything about that one because it's a really fantastic record. <laughs> wow, I have to go find that. It's, I don't remember that. All right, <laughs> I really well, don't fair enough. I remember maybe the him. internet lied to me, and I should go get the the actual CD. So I'd love to know. Well, let's do this. Let Let me bring Mark in. And we can get some questions. And when he's asking you the first question, I'll go find the CD. And Yeah, I mean, I think I did mix like one song for him or something, or maybe a couple of songs. I don't think a whole album, though, but maybe. I mean, there, there are albums that I've mixed that yeah. I don't remember. I mean, yeah, especially know? if you're getting through two songs a day and, you know, so a week later you're on to something else, then who knows? But There was a spring scene album I mixed that I didn't remember, that he hadn't put out. It was not something... <laughs> One of the first things I did here, and it was from Streets of Philadelphia, but apparently there was an entire album that we mixed <laughs> during that during that time. And, you know, he said, he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to put this, I think I'm going to put this record out. I don't know if he's going, I don't know, if, you know, sometimes he says things like that. I don't know if he's really doing it. And uh, I said, what album? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, really? We mixed a whole album? <laughs> It's fair enough. Look, everybody who interviews you makes such a big deal out of the, you know, your 40, it's got to be up to 50 pages now, the the discography, if you go to all music just to print it out. And that's incomplete. So, yeah, I I can see that. I can see that. All right. I apologize to everybody that I've forgotten. No, don't. Man, the fact that you mixed the records is, you know, you don't have to remember all of it. I can't remember Breakfast, so it's... (laughs) <laughs> Not a problem. All right, let's get Mark in here and do a little little Q and A until you got to run and just right. literally say that's it, guys. I'm out of here, and that that'll be the end okay. of, of yeah. this week. And then we'll, we will absolutely schedule a part two. So there's Mark. I'm going to run yeah. and get the Michael Shreve CD. Hi, Mark. Okay. Okay. Hey. Hi, Mark. All right. This has been amazing, Bob. Thanks for doing this. So Thank great. you. My uh, pleasure. Everyone's extremely gracious in the uh, in the chat room, and and really appreciates uh, appreciates your time and talking about it and hearing all these stories. So, right, well, um, thanks for listening and watching. I have a uh, to everyone. A, yes, definitely. Um, I have a quick note for everybody. If you guys are watching on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, um, anywhere other than Crowdcast. You can head to Crowdcast to uh, upvote your favorite questions. I would say at this point, we probably have to close uh, 
taking any more questions. We we have way more than we can get to right now. But with Crowdcast, you have the ability to upvote your questions. So go through, find one. Maybe there's one similar to the question that you wanted to ask, and you can upvote that question to uh, help us get to it. So with that said, we'll start with the most upvoted question. And this one comes from Senor De La Flor. Uh, and he asks, how do you decide when to use an LA3A instead of the 1178? And do you ever stack them? And do you use the pull tech to change how the, uh, the compressor reacts? Thank you. And the pull, pull tech, wait, what was the last, that last bit? Um, so he's wondering if you uh, ever use the pull tech to change how the compressor reacts and so maybe putting the pull techs before mm. the compressors. Oh, no, no, not really. But um, it's usually more the, the sort of ballady non-rock stuff that I use that LA-3A for and, and um, more kind of rock stuff, I think. Um, but not always, you know, it's just, I just listen to it and say, you just hear, oh, that's not suiting this particular vocal. And so I'll switch it to the other one. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't always kind of work that way, but, but that's, I mean, it's certainly the, the LA three is gentler and it's more transparent. You don't really hear it as much. Whereas the 1178, you, you know, it's, you kind of hear that it's, there's compression going on and it's, it can be in a, a nice, a good sound. So awesome. the internet lied to me. Because according yeah. to this, you did not mix any of this record. So maybe you mixed oh, okay. on something else. I don't know. Or, yeah, there was an alternate issue of it or something. But apologies to James Farber, who apparently recorded and mixed it. And it's a fantastic sounding record. Oh, yeah. So it wouldn't... James is great. He's a good friend and excellent engineer. Yeah, really good. So for people who don't know, Michael Shreve's stiletto, go find it and have a listen. It's good. But Bob did not mix it. So there you go. <laughs> One, it was one of the few. So. I mean, it's easier to find records you didn't mix than you know. That's that's a much shorter list than all the <laughs> records you have mixed. That's funny. So, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, so our next question comes from Johansson seventy five, and he says, "We know that Mr. Sheps has changed quite a lot of his routine. I'd like to know what your biggest change of routine has been over the years." Uh, thanks in advance for your answer. So um, maybe like approach and techniques and I'm sure he's referring to Andrew's switch from analog to digital. Um, well, I haven't changed much of anything. I'm still in the same SSL that I started basically mixing on in the late 70s, <laughs> um, early 80s. Um, so what have I changed? I mean, di digital, obviously, um, as soon as that started to get good. Once I discovered Apogee, and all of a sudden digital sounded good. Um, um, not much. I mean, lately I've been using more plugins, but of course I've I've made you know a couple of them have my name on them, and Apogee started making them, and so I kind of helped them a little bit consulting with with Apogee on their plugins. So I've been using them more and more lately, um, but still I'm mixing on the the old SSL, and I'm still using. The, Yes, is all automation, which I believe is by far the best mixing automation that anybody ever came up with, even though it's 
I mean, the last software update was 95. <laughs> right. And it's still on floppy disks. Um, but uh, it changed my routine. Um, I used to work all night, and now I don't. <laughs> I work pretty much days and finish up around 6.30 or 7 and before dinner. And uh, so that routine certainly changed. I mean, at Power Station, I would work. I would work the night shift quite a bit because it was quieter. And um, so, yeah, that's different. And, and I mostly work at home now. I used to work in studios all over the place. See, and with those work hours, you could book your place out at night. <laughs> you know, why not? Well, for good, have, for very good reason. Well, range here, rock stars in my basement. You, let me ask you <laughs> something about um, workflow because we were talking beforehand that we are both in the midst of getting Atmos music, yeah. uh, Atmos music mixing going. So, how is that going to work with your analog workflow? How, what's the process going to be? It's it's tricky. It really is because it's it's really more designed for mixing in the box. It's not designed for this and so um you know i'm using pretty much all the all, nearly all the buses on my console because a bunch of them i use for effects and the, the uh, routing buses and um you know there's like um there's the bed of of the 12 it's like a 12 channel this seven dot dot one dot four which is named the bed music which is including the five seven one and the four speakers in the ceiling. And then um, and then I, I have a few extras that I just, if I actually want to do something silly with panning something funny with an object, keep a couple couple there. But the, the big thing is that, you know, I'm really used to the, the bus compressor and the SSL as part of my sound. Yeah. And when I started mixing 5.1, I expanded it because there's there's eight extra VCAs in that desk. And so I linked that to the to the, the extra VCAs, and I patched all the surround buses through there. Of course, then now I've run out because I need I need four more for the ceiling speakers, and so the those extra VCAs are in this thing called a Euro rack under the console. I don't know if you know much about that, but um, so I actually found a actually my assistant Brandon found a um, a used Euro rack on online which i bought and he's actually back there wiring it right now wow so you're gonna have a 714 ssl compressor for the bed exactly and it does the fade too this master fader because that's all part of the same right the same vca circuit there and um yeah which is going to be really good that um a guy named lucas vandermee at at um apogee actually designed the original mod which is really just an op amp and then some wires and now he's he's actually um designed a pc board unfortunately the first version came in that was was manufactured wrong and now we're waiting for the next one and um because it's going to combine it's going to have some controls on it to to reduce the amount of compression happening in the in the rear and the surrounds and the and the top so i can change depending on because on on where you have music all around it's you can kind of compress all of the same but on live stuff if you're compressing the the audience as much you start to hear it right right it'll kinda, be pumping yeah yeah it's kind of pumps yeah and i've had some comments from mastering people about that and 
So, well, that sounds kind of weird. And so I've already have a control for the five one for the rear channels in the five one, so I can attenuate the the compression a little bit. Right. But um, so we're we're gonna have that hopefully in a couple of days when we get the next. Wow, fantastic! And you've been mixing five one forever. Long time, yeah. And you print yeah, everything really that you do in five one as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I do it all simultaneously. I figured out a way. You know, it was one of those things where. The wife said, "You should be mixing five, five one, and you know, back it w was just becoming a thing." And I said, "Oh, geez, you got to be kidding me!" And then I woke up in the middle of the night and realized how I I could probably do it. Right. You know? And then I figured out this little trick with the compression. And then because you've got the LCR panners on that, on that desk. No, no, there's no LCR. I just oh, use right. the, the routing buses. Right, right. It's really kludgy. You know, because but you're, you're really I, I used can, to it. <laughs> but I'm mean, really used to it. Yeah, you know, and the the small faders are like a trim between the the stereo mix and the surround mix. I put them all at zero, and now I can just raise and lower a little bit if if I hear something that should be different in the surround mix when I switch back and forth. Right. And I print it all at once. Well, Betty's very smart, so if she says you should do something. She's right, I think. That's... Yeah, she's saying I should be doing Atmos. And so, okay. So here you are. Yeah. And I, I'm still trying to get my head around it. I mean, it seems, to be honest, it seems overkill for music. I think, I think what is exciting to me about it is, I mean, because I've always been fascinated with the psychoacoustic and binaural and anything that can move stuff outside the speakers. And I mean, and your right. mixes go way outside sometimes. Really great. But the fact, first of all, that it has dedicated height things to it. So you, you don't use a lot of it, but that you can get up there. Yeah. But the main thing to me was that it actually has a viable binaural component. So you, you're not counting on everybody buying 60 speakers to listen to it at home. That you're going to get... Listen to the... You listen to the binaural? Yeah, it's it's tricky and you've got to be careful with it but i think I, i've gotten some really interesting results because i don't have the speakers set up yet so i've only been doing the binaural and kind of going back and forth and i do a lot of mixing in headphones anyway so i'm weird uh -huh. so it's it different people re react to it differently like i'm very bad at taking acoustic cues from stereo so i don't hear the height unless something is moving but messing with it i've gotten some really interesting results out of it uh -huh. so You'll have to, we'll have to talk about that sometime because, man, uh, just, you know, you go into the, the renderer there and you can have, it's got all these different settings where you can turn the front speakers off, you can turn the side speakers, yeah. slow, medium, and high. And I find that if I turn most of it off, it sounds pretty good. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I switch to the stereo and the stereo always seems to sound better. I don't know. It just, because you lose some top end. But if, if you keep it, because I keep most of the drums and vocals and things in the front. Right. So if I turn that off, that still sounds pretty good. And I know? think I think that's the idea. That's one of the things about just multi-channel stuff in general is like the the five one mixes that never worked to me were the ones where the shakers in the back left speaker. Yeah. No, I don't. And want like to tell you that. that's not the way the record was produced, and it's not the way anybody really wants to listen to it. So it's still building across the front, but then. All the stuff you were hoping people can feel coming from elsewhere, now you can force them to, is my yeah. take on it. We'll see once the speakers are up. I'm very excited. 
but uh, also yeah. scared to death about the lack of a mix bus. So I like the idea because I don't even have a compressor on the mix bus anymore, but just the limiter. I, you know, it's a compressor, so I use it and I'm used to it. And yeah. I'm, uh, so, yeah, I'm going to have a 714 comp limiter going. Is there such a thing? There's there will be. One, I guess. There will be. I'm fine with multi mono. Sure, I actually don't mind if they're not tracking. You know, so really, so the, the center's moving around a little bit. It, well, yeah, yeah, because I use unlinked stereo parallel stuff all the time, and it doesn't really bother me because there's always bother. enough of the uncompressed thing. It's okay. So I'm hoping with a limiter, it'll be. We'll see. Right. We'll see. It's gonna be. I'm gonna feel like a total baby. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sure, but yeah. Well, exciting. same here. And this has been interesting. I'm. I'm just trying to. Because I, I ended up putting too much stuff in the the top speakers. I put, well, I got the Apogee, the impulse response to the Apogee Studio, which works pretty well. And the um, I put some slaps up there in the, in the rear spe top speakers. But I just, the trouble is they're not compressed yet because we haven't got this mod done. I'm right. sorry. Right. We haven't got this mod done. And so I think once I... I get that happening. I, I think it's going to start to make more sense. Right. At the moment, I'm just going to turn them down a little bit when we make the, the what you call it, file. The, the, right, the there's this file that, yeah, ADM file. Yeah. Right. All right. Enough about my questions. Let's let's yeah. do other questions. That's great. It's exciting for what's to come there. Yes. Um, actually, and right in that vein. Uh, this next question is from Dago and he says, hi, Bob and Andrew, what's your take on creating depth in your mixes? Um, I know it's a bit of a big subject, but could you please share some pointers to start with? Thanks in advance, Dag. There's this thing called reverb <laughs> kind of helps you a lot with that <laughs> <laughs> and, and different amounts of reverb, depending on what you want in the back and what you want in the front and, uh, just placement in stereo and, uh, um, you know, delay effects, things like that. And, and, and what you put where, you know, in, what in the arrangement do you want in farther away and what in the arrangement do you want closer to you? Um, and I think that's a big part of it is because nothing works without contrast. So you need a right. dry thing to offset the wet thing. So the wet thing can be behind the dry thing, but can you talk yes. specifically though? Because I think some of it's so second nature to you that it just feels like it's it's obvious. But different people have very different ideas about reverbs. Like without Schmidt, it's all about only one or two things got into a reverb because then you use a different reverb. So he'll use lots of different reverbs and very, very few things going into each reverb. Whereas like you've done entire records with one stairwell. So yeah. <laughs> so for you, is it really just about how much reverb there is, but you like the one homogenous stereo thing that the mix is living in, in terms of reverb? Or are you experimenting with different spaces on different things? Well, I use a lot of different reverbs. I mean, I always have, like, my my mixes live chambers is really short and bright. And then I'll have a an altiverb, which is like a kind of like a plate almost. And then a, and then a longer altiverb, which is like a a big church and and then the the apogee sort of ambience which is like a studio it doesn't even sound like reverb it just sounds like ambience um and then i'll have my pcm 70s which are like a really long chorusy kind of 
thing. And so I got, I'll have a whole bunch of different things. So I'll try different things and, I'll, and different combinations of things. But, but I very often try to keep everything in kind of the same room. So like I won't, if I have the vocal in a big reverb and the guitars at some sort of reverb, uh, I'm going to basically put some of that on the drums too. Right. Because mm-hmm. cause I, on, on most records, I mean, sometimes you want the contrast of it being totally different. But most of the time, I kind of picture a, a, a place of some sort. And, and uh, it, wa- it has to make some kind of, some kind of sense visually, even though I'm not seeing anything. And so I want them to be in somewhat the same in- environment somehow. You know, they got to be connected somehow in the environment to me. And right. so uh, that's important. So I use different amounts and oops, different combinations. And uh, Sennheiser gave me the wrong size pads here, I think, <laughs> earbuds. <laughs> But um, yeah, that that's it. And uh, you know, it's nice to have have something really dry, and then have one thing way off in a distance. You know, yeah. Um, there's so many different different ways. It's it's, it's it is a, it's a big subject, really. I mean, there's a very yeah. basic way of looking yeah. at it, but depending on what. The, what you're dealing with, there's so many different interesting things you can do. And uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the, the most important thing to me is to, is to really don't focus in on any particular thing, you know what I mean? Or for, for very long. I mean, you got to always step back and, and listen to the overall picture and the overall thing. And then, and then if something bugs you, so if something sounds out of place in that picture that doesn't belong there, figure out how to either you got to get rid of it or you got to figure out how to make it work in, right. with everything else. And I think also with the and I'm terrible at reverb and always have been like it just it's difficult for me. And one of the things I'm finding now is that the less compression there is going around like either parallel compression on lots of stuff or bus compression or even just limiting the less of that there is the easier it is to hear the differences in the amounts of reverb you've got going because stuff starts to start sounding the same again so you've got to back off overall to take advantage of that because otherwise it just starts to sound like a mess and you don't get the actual contrast anymore which for me is difficult. My mixes are way too loud and compressed and, you know, so it's a hard thing, but it's, um, yeah, yeah. Everything messes with everything else. It isn't just right. the ambience that gets you the size. No, no, there's so many, so many different things. And so much of it is just the arrangement itself, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. True. And I think, it, you know, if anyone wants a masterclass in that, like Avalon is a great, example of very seemingly very simple arrangements but there are lots of details and all of that and it really does build those tracks right yeah and then the robbie robertson record in almost a different way because sometimes it sounds like there are hundreds of things going on yeah but still (laughs) a huge sense of space so all right i'm going to shut up what else you got mark you got time Uh, for one more bob there's a lot of people what else you got all right. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a lot of people uh, in the chat room asking um, 
if Bob will make a stairwell plugin. So <laughs> everybody yeah, wants a stairwell. <laughs> we do have a stairwell, but it's not a real good one. It's in, mm-hmm. in is it in space? It's in uh, Clear Mountain's domain. There's a stairwell, but it was just a stairwell for a um, in a parking garage that we just happened to be walking through as we were sampling a bathroom in a theater. And um, but if I could find a, a good stairwell, there's a bunch of places that we wanted to to, uh, to get impulse responses for. There's a tunnel that goes under PCH down here where, where my, my wife rides her bike to work. We want to get that. There's a great church in the Palisades that we want to get. And um, But if anybody knows of an amazing stairwell, I mean, that, that power station one was unique. Plus the fact that Tony painted it with this epoxy paint, which made it th- twice as reflective. Right. And, um, and just the way the thing was shaped, there was something that, it was just magical. I mean, it really, really was incredible. I mean, the way that the different frequencies would drop off at different rates, that was the thing, you know, like, like it would get darker as the, as it, as it decayed, you know, it would start with this really bright thing and just gradually turn into this other thing, which yeah, it was pretty magical. You know? And do you still clap your hands every time you walk into a, a reverberant space? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> pretty obnoxiously. Yeah, I, I, I remember for a while I tried not. Oh, I'm not going to clap. I'll just go. But that's worse. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah, it's better no, to clap. Give, a, give it a good clap. <laughs> it's better to it's be way give, less. Noticeable. Give it a good. It's better to give a good clap than to get the clap. <laughs> yes, that excellent <laughs> advice. Excellent advice. You see, people didn't awesome. think they were going to get a little STD seminar as part yeah. of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how are you guys? How are you doing on time? Uh, do you want to do yeah, one okay, more? Let's got... Yeah, let's do a couple okay. more. Okay, great. So this one's from Russ Miller, and he says, Hi, Bob and Andrew. I've heard you mention uh, that you try to find the character that the lead vocal should be portraying in a song. I'd love to hear a little about how you go about achieving that. I'd also love to know how you deal with live records with no audience or ambient mic recorded. Uh, do you fake <laughs> it? Do you find that you overall, you automate more versus compressing in live recordings? Uh, Such a question, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's start with uh, uh, how do you find the character that the lead vocals should be portraying in a song? Well, just listen to the whatever it's about, whatever the try to understand what the lyric is about. I mean, sometimes it's just some stupid love song, some you know, and it doesn't all right, who cares? But uh, you know, it's just something I got from Springsteen because every one of his songs is about something and it's it's meaningful, and the and the the main character in the song is there's some conflict of some sort, and and just trying to understand what that is and and if i'm not getting the lyric i'll ask i'll ask the artist okay what's what is this actually about although sometimes i hesitate to ask because you know i'm hoping that they're probably hoping that it's obvious (laughs) right (laughs) and um but um you know i don't i don't know what else other than just trying to understand and how does that translate the narrative of a story? How does it translate to your actual mix? I mean, is there ever anything conscious that you do based on that, or it's just that's the mood, and you I, know it's the mood, so you chase just it. Just the mood. 
it's 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 more the mood and it's kind of you know i mean it's it's not necessarily a, a literal thing yeah it's more like like okay is this a sad song so it should be more of a dark kind of a environment or is it you know what what's the mood of the of the lyric i don't know i mean it's a lot of times it's just i no reverb you know i mean i i try to whenever i can i try to make something totally dry because i really like that but it so rarely works somehow steely dan those guys were masters at it, at that sort of thing um but um yeah, I don't know. And then the other, what was the other part of the question? It was about mixing live shows, dealing with oh, right, well, with no also audience dealing with the lack oh. of audience mics, but just sort of yeah, the lack approach. of ambience. That's and really also rough. asking if you uh, automate or compress more in live recordings. Probably compress more, uh, and could be that I autom- I don't know if I automate more. I mean, you know, you're always chasing. Um, vocal levels and stuff like that so yeah probably more than i would think you know because uh you just want everything to to hear it i mean a lot of times if a band is playing the if it's a good band they'll they kind of balance themselves you know and uh i always say if you if you want that guitar part louder you should have played it louder what's the problem what are you, what are you telling me for but no um but as far as the audience, I mean, geez, I mixed on the, the last um, band album on um, Stage Friday. There, there was a there's a 1971 concert from um, Royal Albert Hall recorded really badly on four track. Of course, there was no audience, you know, other than what was leaking into the vocal mics. And... Um, so yeah, we had to use find some audience someplace and put it in because it sounds ridiculous without any right. audience. So luckily, I I had recorded another show at Royal Albert Hall in the same place, much years years later, and this is just like eight years ago or something. And um, so I had that, and we kind of dumped it all in. Right. I mean, you don't have the ambience of the band. That's the trouble. You you know, it's just audience. It's just people clapping. And hopefully you can find enough between songs and things like that that you can use use for audience reaction. Um, and then you just got to recreate the ambience somehow. And that's using delays and, and reverbs and, um, you know, stuff like that to, to try to simulate it. Things sound bouncing off walls, you know. Mm-hmm. I think for years, Peter Gabriel Plays Live was the one everybody sampled. <laughs> you know, the first oh, really? live album he did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Really good. Lots of clean crowd in there that you can grab if you need. But that's more stadium y stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have not mixed nearly as many live things as you have, but I definitely find myself compressing more because it feels more like the room. And then riding, I, I tend to try and mix in huge passes, almost like front of house, you yeah. know, to get that yeah, flow no, from too. song to song. But it, it, for me, and I don't, tell me if this is, because obviously when you're mixing the live thing, usually, unless there's a ton of playback, it's simpler arrangements than the records. It is, it's the people on stage, yeah. but you can't ever bury anything 
Because if there's going to be picture with it and they show the keyboard player, even if that part's technically supposed to be buried and there's something weird about the way it's recorded, you can't see somebody play something it. that you can't hear. And that's something that's right. you can get You're away with right. on records that you cannot do with live. No, no, absolutely. And one of my pet peeves is for, because uh, a lot of stuff, a lot of live stuff nowadays is recorded by front of house guys, right? With their uh, avid, whatever yeah. it is. Right. And they, and, but they don't care about audience mics, a lot of them. And, uh, and it just pisses me off where you get, you get a pair of audience mics that are pointed directly at the PA. Yeah. Like the front, front of house front guy of house. thinks, thinks he's recording yeah. his mix. It's like, well, you know, I'm sure you've done a great mix, but we don't really care about your mix, pal. We want to hear what the audience mm -hmm. is doing. Point the mics backwards or sideways. And at least four, at a minimum of four, you know, if not eight, you know, really, I get these yeah. recordings with 16 audience mics and wow, it's fantastic. But uh, like one pair of audience mics that only has the, the PA, like, that's really mean. Yeah, it's, it like, is, and it can be brutal. It can be really tough because you've got to get them up there, but then you start getting a slap off the PA and things like that. I yeah. mean, I, I mixed the thing from Royal Albert Hall and I mean, they had eight. I think it was eight, it was four pairs of it. And even so, it was hard to find the crowd in some of those mics. Yeah, luckily, I, the, the, it was a show that I recorded. It was a, a Fogarty show, actually. And uh, I told him that I used it, so it was, he said it was okay. But, um, you know, and so it was pretty well, it, it was pretty well well done. And, and uh, you know, and it sounded, sounded fine for his show. And we all, obviously, we only, we didn't use it when the band was playing at all. Because <laughs> you can't. But, um, but this, this one thing for the band was like, it it was the nightmare to and and this the other stuff is i've done a lot of stuff for steve and steve and Zant, by the way has one of the most incredible bands you've ever heard just i mean they're very sort of eight or 70s you know but um this guy's a genius man he, he's what he does is unbelievable and his band just the best new york musicians you know going and two audience mics unfortunately Right. So I had to do a lot of work. <laughs> well, Peter Gabriel plays live. There you go. There's your tip. Tip of the day. Right. Yeah. All right. One more, or do you got to run? What do you think? Yeah, one more. All right. One more. Okay. Great. Uh, this one comes from Bing. And uh, Bing says Hi, Bob and Andrew. What are your strategies for monitoring level, different systems, references, et cetera? All right. Well, let me see. <clears throat> I like to change volume a lot. Uh, you know, I don't ever mostly quiet, fairly quiet. And um, I got a pair of these little Yamaha speakers here, which is what I use most of the time. And then I have my Dyn Audios, which I, I switch back and forth to them. Um, the Dyn Audios are for my, well, what was my 5.1 system, but now it's a surround system. And uh, I got these speakers and these little Sony speakers in the ceiling, and um, and then I have a there's a little old Sharp TV up up there for the SSL that's got stereo speakers, and I I listen on those that sometimes that's that's really fun. I used to listen on these little Apple speakers, but I fried them all, <laughs> <laughs> and they don't they stopped making them years ago, and so the TV works pretty good. 
pretty good for that. And sometimes I'll throw some headphones on once in a while. Right. I spend a huge amount of time in headphones, strangely. Uh, I've got my old Tannoys that I've been using for my entire career, <laughs> but they're about to be replaced by a gigantic pair of PMCs, which I'm very excited about, and I cannot wait. Um, and I've been using the iMac speakers, using Loopback to route Pro Tools into the computer speakers, because when you're listening, like, for instance, checking, I go through people's lists and stuff on um, just Spotify while I'm reading interviews and things like that, and stuff comes on and it sounds incredible anywhere, so you need to make your mix sound incredible there, too. A lot of stuff will sound terrible on the computer speakers, but I think like your little TV up there, when it sounds good there, it's going to sound great once you get it back down onto some good speakers. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And it, it works. And it's about just changing perspective. You've got, like you were saying before, you have to keep listening to the whole song. Don't listen to details. And the only way to do that is to just keep changing something. Either walk away from it, yeah. listen to something else, switch speakers, switch level, whatever it is that resets you. Yeah, I would agree with all, all that. Uh, if you guys don't mind, there's one question that was lingering down uh, a little bit below all the upvoted ones that that would be awesome to get a quick answer to. Um, this is from Fernando, and he says, "Hello, Bob and Andrew. What music do you listen to?" Oh, that's and a tough question. <laughs> we can point to Bob's uh, um, inspiration playlist that's in the yes, chat. Yes, absolutely, as well. uh, which is great. I mean, I would take his, you know songs he's worked on playlist and make that a must listen as well mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah Absolutely. um yeah what well, that's the thing i listen to oldies i hate to say it you know because i'm old <laughs> and um the songs i like are ones that i kind of grew up with and uh, i mean there's some more recent stuff that that uh, i listen to um You know, I mean, there wasn't anything. I tried to watch the Grammys this year. There wasn't anything on the Grammys. I mean, although the Taylor Swift stuff sounded kind of nice. I thought that was that was kind of cool. Um, but the rest of it was, a lot of it just made me feel ill. <laughs> it, just, it was like not fun and, and really kind of disgusting. <laughs> I hate to say that i shouldn't say that but i was waiting for you to say that wap song that was uh <laughs> who's that pretty good uh, <laughs> there I was they uh were, they were writhing on a bed oh yes no. yeah and what's the one with yeah. with cardi b dancing with a that's the it one was a, like a striptease thing what the fuck was that yeah. are you kidding this is like this is like primetime TV family. This is a family like show. I believe they had putting some that on television. You know, it sh as should be. Well, it makes the, uh, you know the Super I mean? Bowl wardrobe malfunction seem pretty tame. Nothing. I know. Right. What yeah. the hell? I can't believe they got away with that. This, uh, it really yeah. made me sick. It really did. The, you know, the best part about that uh, was they tried, like, they sang different lyrics in the chorus in the actual radio cut, but the background vocal stem was from the record. So oh, you really? still hear what they were trying to censor coming through the background stem. <laughs> no <laughs> shit. Oops. Oops. Wonderful job. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I listen to lots of old stuff too, but I just, I'll just i throw out two things that are relatively recent because I've just sort of thought of them off the top of my head that I think are amazing. Um, there's uh, a woman, Adrienne Lenker, who's the, I've just butchered her name, but she's the lead singer from a band called Big Thief, but she's put out a couple records just under her name that are just acoustic guitar and her voice that are beautiful. And Alan Johannes, uh, his record Hum that came out last year is astonishing. I think it's yeah. it's one of my favorite records ever, and it is not wearing oh. off yet. So that's two recent oh. things I like. Yeah. Does anybody know this girl, uh, Margaret Glaspie? No. Anybody ever heard of her? She's really good, man. Oh. Her record came out a few years ago, and I, I just heard it on the radio. I went, Whoa, and I bought her record, and, you know, she's really good. She, I think she plays this baritone guitar, and it, I don't know. Great. Yeah. All right, Chad, uh, I'm going to link you to her. All right. So there you go. So you got some very obscure. I think her name's Margaret. Margaret Glassby. Yes. yes. That's, that's her last name for sure. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. I'm dropping yeah. In the I mean, and um, Alabama Shakes, I like a lot. <laughs> mm. They played at one of our radio shows. They were incredible. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I got to say, Sean Everett, who's done did a couple of those records that's brilliant just amazing he did that margaret glassby oh record, did he actually did he oh right yeah. fantastic yeah. yeah i think he he and uh and blake mills you know both sort of kind of out of the tony berg camp had worked with tony yeah. for quite a bit and both of them right. are two of the sort of most astonishing record makers in totally different ways they really are at the moment so because blake mills agree. just put out a record as well uh, a duo record Ooh, that's really good Mm-hmm. Right, I have to get that. I don't. Know, I'm. Too, I don't listen to much. I'm always. Well, that's the thing. We're always you know? listening to music. Like doing research for yeah. the interviews. When I'm not watching an interview, I actually get to listen to stuff, which has been great. And then I've been coding right. this year because it's locked down and then the pubs are closed. So, like for the first time in my life as an adult, I've actually been <clears> listening <throat> to some music because there's time. But yeah, yeah. There you go. All right, well, I'm getting all these messages all right, from uh, Bob. This is absolutely amazing. You can yeah. tell Robbie I say hi, but he may not remember me. But it was from Contact of the Underworld of Red Red Boy that I worked with him on years and years ago. It was, okay, it was great. Tell him I'm the fan girl okay. who asked about the thing on Broken Arrow. Okay. But, all right, but I'll get in touch to schedule a, a part two because uh, we'll definitely yeah. do that. I think May and June are going to be our part two months because everybody needs a part two now. Um, and for the people watching next week is Alan Parsons. So I'm going to start wow, great. doing research Ooh, right now. Watch that. <laughs> yeah. Anything in particular hey, right, you want me to ask him about? Uh, <laughs> He's going to ask him if he remembers the, bo- the, the boat ride. The boat ride. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I will absolutely ask him that. I will do that. I'm also going to make him talk about Dark Side of the Moon for like nine hours. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'd be it. Yeah, he's brilliant, man. A good guy, just a really good guy. Yeah. So I a lot. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bob, and really appreciate cool. you taking all this time. I know it's tough in the middle of a work day, so yeah, we'll schedule a another pleasure. Monday. It was really fun. All right, yeah. so now's the time where we all wave awkwardly and I mute our mics right in the middle of someone saying something. So thanks, everybody. Hi, guys. Man, such a legend and such a nice guy. And I'm sure you are looking forward to part two as much as I am. 
But in the meantime, another great one coming up next week, the one and only Alan Parsons. See you there.